Hello, and welcome back to uh, Elevator Bullpen, uh, a, a podcast where me, Kyle Scherer, and my f- friend, Joshua Rapier, ask the question of what if we had control of X franchise and what we would do with it as uh, respective creatives, me being a creative writing student uh, and him being a uh, film student. So mm-hmm. this this one is a bit different. The last time we took uh, Star Trek and, and just uh, went cr- creatively and did whatever we wanted. This time we are taking two shows that came out relatively recently that uh, we watch because we're fans of the franchises, but we think could be better. That ultimately the shows did disappoint in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And we do think that there are enough ideas here to be mined that if it was perfected it could and, and re- rejigged, the shows could be really, really stellar. Uh, and I'll hand it over to Josh to uh, lay out the rules of the way we approach this. Hello, and welcome to the bullpen. So, rule-wise, we agreed upon uh, no drastic alterations or add-ons. We're not going to throw in random, you know, iconic characters from the past. So, you know, no Davros or Darth Vader showing up halfway through the series. We're going to keep the characters in the original show, or we can remove them or seriously alter them, but no adding in any extras. Uh, we're going to stick to the original episode limit. So, in my case, I've got six episodes. Kyle has seven. So... We're not going to add any you know, extra seasons to build up a whole elaborate series arc. We're going to stick to, the, stick to what we got. And no retconning past events in the franchises to fit our needs. So we're going to take a hammer to the latest entries in these Titanic franchises and try to knock them into shape a little bit. With the, the rules out of the way, the way we have decided this is that uh, we oscillate who begins. So I began the Star Trek one, so Josh will begin this one with Doctor Who Flux. Mm-hmm. The latest season in one of my in my absolute favorite show ever. Uh, I would like to reiterate if there's any people listeners who, who are big fans of Flux, I know there are some people out there who enjoy it much more than me, uh, this episode isn't meant to be a critique at you. Like I said, there's some elements of Flux I liked. I, I like offering alternative takes on certain stories, but I hope I don't want to make people feel bad about what they love. Yeah, and, and the same goes for the Book of Boba Fett when I get to that, uh, that we like these franchises and we think that the shows had great ideas, didn't follow through on them enough, and could be better. But once again, art is subjective. so. <laughs> Uh, someone could think Doctor Who Flux is the best season of Doctor Who, and and vice versa for a Book of Boba Fett. And that doesn't not bother me. I don't happen to agree, but, you know, that's human nature for you. Mm-hmm. So following the massively polarizing and retcon-filled episode that was the Timeless Children in the Series 12 finale, Series 13 had a lot of responsibility to be the series to continue the new direction Chris Chimel has sent the show in, and redeem it in the eyes of a lot of people who disapproved of the Timeless Child reveal. Uh, however, the series length was shortened drastically due to a certain event in 2020 that we shall not speak of. Uh, the ex- official explanation is to due to film limitations, which is valid, but I also suspect the downward sloping viewing figures and feedback from the last few series played a part in the only six episode length, half of its normal episode slots. However, later on, like barely just a month before the actual episodes came out, there was an announcement that a six episode season given the umbrella title Flux, had a rare opportunity in New Who to be the one big story told across just one series, that this would be the most serialized season of modern Doctor Who yet. So, if you'll permit me to flex my fanboy muscles and take us on a little history trip, 
Last time the main show had an attempt at this kind of serialized season was Trial of the Time Lord in the 80s. Uh, back when, yeah, <laughs> back with the iconic rain, uh, explosion of the rainbow factory coat <laughs> with my favorite Colin Baker. So uh, yeah, it's a series with a lot of flaws, but I have a big fondness for it. And judging from Carl's reaction mm. and many discussions we've had in the past, he has a fondness for it too. But the biggest comparison New Who series had to a serialized story outside of two-parters or the occasional three-parters, the one that got me most excited for what a serialized season of Doctor Who could do was with the third series of its big brother show, Torchwood. Now, Torchwood was the kid brother show that tried to act older than its big brother by being crass and edgy as possible, which led to a lot of mixed results in its first two seasons. Uh, you would get a genuinely brilliant Gemma episode now and then, but more often than not, you get an embarrassing story with sex gas that feeds <laughs> off orgasm energy or Cyberwoman in a scant bikini. Uh, both of those episodes written by current Doctor Who showrunner Chris Chibnall. So <laughs> I, I like to think uh, the BBC officials turned a blind eye when they, to those episodes <laughs> when they hired him. So those shows, you know, viewing-wise and feedback-wise bit of a mixed bag so that led to the third season only being five episodes are contracted so with this kind of limitation showrunner russell t davis came up with a great idea to make it one big story that pushed the show in directions it had never gone on to before and in 2009 the results were the five-parter miniseries children of earth which in my opinion is not just one of the greatest things to come out of doctor universe but also one of the best miniseries on British television. It took total advancement of what's supposed to be its punishing limit to tell a tightly woven and emotionally devastating human epic, one that pushed its main core cast through hell and where its extremely powerful and child-obsessed alien threat was just marginally more terrifying and now callous than how the government was shown in its bitter satire that nowadays feels all too disturbingly real. So, jumping back to the main show, with the announcement of a six-chapter overarching story, I felt the show was doing the right thing by doing this mini-series take. You know, I thought it had to be an opportunity to be its own children of Earth by being more tighter with its writing to get to the nitty and gritty of the emotional fallout and revelations of both the timeless children reveal and of this new cosmic threat, the Flux. Yet somehow, somehow, Chris Chibnall decided not to be as tight with writing this series and the result has so much going on in it, yet so little feels like it had real impact. So, much like Chris Chibnall's past series, Flux has become a pretty polarizing series in fandom. Some hate it, others love it a lot, and I'm more so in the middle. For the first half of the series, I was a fairly big defender of it. I was really excited about what was happening and a potential route it could go in. I grew to like the 13th Doctor a lot more this season. The alien designs felt great once again after being rather lackluster in the last few seasons. Um, shout outs to that, you know, Cats ripoff in Orphan 55. That was so bad. They just stuck a bad cattiest wig to that poor actress. So, you know, Flux decided, hey, let's do actual good makeup again. And I appreciate it. The new companion, Dan, is very charming, if perhaps overly too silly new companion. I love Professor Eustatius Jericho. Uh, he is perfect companion material. I am salty about his fate in the show. War of the Sontarans and Village of Angels have become some of my favorite 13th Doctor stories. And the opening story was just such an insane blast of fun with so many moving pieces. I was intrigued to see how it all connects. But by the end, when the full picture was clear, the result to me was personally was a disjointed mess where characters ended up when it needs to be by random teleportations, culminating in a really stuffed finale. 
Uh, if the end of a series has the audience actively questioning what the state of the universe is, perhaps another draft is needed. Now, apparently the initial plan for the series was to have been comprised of eight parts. Before it was cut down to six, and the two additional episodes spun off into their own specials. All this makes a lot of sense regarding how cluttered the finale feel. Uh, it makes me question whether Chris Schimmel had taken into account that maybe he should cut a few characters and subplots now he had a shorter runtime. So, with the benefit of having a full picture, and no downsides of having an actual budget, I wanted to suggest some alterations on how to possibly streamline the story, shift some character and story pieces to hopefully cut out some of the fat and add more depth to the remaining elements. Uh, the core of the series is I want to essentially ask the question to its characters, when everything around you is falling apart, where do you stand? Which I feel like should be the natural conclusion to everything the Doctor went through in the Timeless Children reveal. So before we jump into the episode summaries, I wanted to start by diving into the new characters the series brought and give an overview of changes on them. So something the series also had to deal with, on top of everything else I've mentioned, was introducing us to Dan Lewis, latest in a long line of companions. Uh, when John Bishop was announced as the next companion, I thought it was a mistake on the showrunner's part to introduce us to a new companion just after the departure of the two then-current companions, Ryan and Graham, since I felt the next series would really benefit from having just a Doctor and one companion, you know, give Yaz a much more focus than she had in the past with, you know, too many companions cluttering fingers up. I was worried by giving us another new companion, it would just once again block up a potentially interesting Doctor and companion dynamic with Yaz and the Doctor, since the New Year's special Revolution of Daleks implied Yaz was growing more independent and aware of the Doctor's more toxic behaviour. Uh, instead, Dan Lewis proved himself to be a really endearing character from the get-go. Uh, John Bishop giving him this air of this friendly uh, local bloke you could share a pint with, and on the rare occasion the two characters would actually just talk instead of banter, him and Yaz worked nicely with each other. But I think the problem was, he was too much of a comedic character. Or at least an attempt in one. With some of the jokes being too dumb, you know, even someone like Daz would know the difference between certain words. Like that really bad, you know, forebears joke uh, in his first episode. It's just, what was the context behind that? It was so bad. In the marketing, we were told Dan was the man on a precipice of something big in his personal life. Yet, I really did not get that sense. We learned later on in the series, his fiancée left him before marriage, but it's never really played as an essential part of his character. So, for my take, Dan is now a divorcee after a long and rocky marriage, jobless and forced to downsize to an apartment on the same street as his parents. While he's still an upbeat bloke, there will be more of a focus on the negative aspects of his life. I want to basically have him go through a midlife crisis. That realisation he's in his 40s, yet is essentially back to square one in his life, and fears the world is falling apart around him. Till he gets kidnapped by a talking northern dog, kidnapped from that first kidnapping by a time traveller, and finds out the whole universe is literally falling apart. The series teams him up with Yaz a lot. In a way, it's more like he's Yaz's companion, which is actually a character dynamic concept I like a lot. It can show how much Yaz has been changed with the Doctor. So I keep that in, expand upon a bit if I could, but I do want him to have more urgency in story, build up more of a connection with the Doctor, because I feel like they were really lacking heart-to-heart -heart moments. Mm. I'd also give him a running question throughout the series of, do I have what it takes to be part of this time-traveling, world-saving crew? Are my best days behind me, or can I control when I get them? And can this old dog learn new tricks? Uh, do you have any particular thoughts on Dan or Flux as a whole? As you say, Flux is a complicated thing. I actually really liked some of its ideas, and I thought especially the end was very messy. 
Um, I know me and my mother, we watch Doctor Who together. It's been a tradition for us uh, since I was very young. You know, Flux came out with, the, you know, rolling with some great concepts, great ideas, and we were super excited. I know we watched a couple episodes more than once, pick up little things, and then we were very disappointed by the end. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to see how you clean that mess up. <laughs> However, I really, really love Dan. Nice, yeah. <laughs> um... He is essentially everybody's dad. <laughs> yeah. And I love that dynamic. He's just this this guy who's trying to be to be all happy and uh, happy and nice and upbeat. Uh you know, in reality, you know, he, he he's had not that great of a life and he doesn't have, you know, a lot of prospects ahead of him. I mean, he even pretends to have a job at the museum. Just yes, that was, like, that was the perfect character intro for him, I feel. Yeah, uh, like, I get that. I, I get that so much. And the actor just really imbues it with a sense of charm that I love. I'm personally quite tired of a lot of, you know, 19-year-old, you know, Londoner girls or, you know, British girls being the companions. Uh, I love more, let's say, mature companions, like, Graham, he's my favorite thing from this era. I really liked his his mm. companion arc. Uh, Dan is great. There's a couple characters from the expanded universe, like Evelyn Smythe. She is amazing. Mm. I love her so much. Uh, if anyone wants to get into Big Finish, I really recommend starting with her first story, The Marion Conspiracy. Uh, so having this kind of variety of companions, I think it's a very nice touch. And, you know, like like we both agree, Dan is, Dan is great, but I feel like there's more I can hopefully give him here with yeah. this you know, new summary. And speaking of Dan, let's go on to uh, his close friend, uh, Dan Curtis, or to be more exact, Claire Brown, as this is a two-for-one deal. Halloween Apocalypse threw so many characters that when we first met Claire, I confused her for Diane, since she was established just a few scenes earlier, and we were told she was going to meet up with Dan later for that kind of date. So I just assumed that was, you know, Diane showing up outside of Dan's house with a new haircut, you know, talking to Doctor. Uh, only later did it become clear to me that they were separate characters. You know, I am a very observant. It was only later that I realized Claire had two arms compared to Diane's just one. But when we got to the end of the series, I thought to myself, hey, wouldn't it be simpler if they, just, if they were just one and the same? You know, think about it. They both get kidnapped in that first episode and sent to a different time and place. And later on in the series, it becomes clear what has happened with Claire. But with Diane, it's less obvious. Why did Azure kidnap her? I thought he had some big plan for her, but in the end, it's, it seemed like they just took her because of her connection with Dan Lewis. And even then, it's not like they used her as a bargaining chip or hostage. She's kind of just forgotten about till the finale, where she somehow knows to escape an interdimensional prison. So, yeah, I'm scrapping that arc. Out of the two, I feel like Claire has most going on plot-wise, but Diane intrigues me a lot more as a character with a personality and inbuilt connection to the TARDIS crew with Dan. So I'm essentially removing Claire and putting her plot line and psychic powers into Diane, who in this scenario is still a museum creator and Dan's you know, close friend, possible love interest, who becomes a host for the renegade weeping angel and disappears back in time to see her again in Village of the Angels. Out of the two actresses of Diane and Claire, I would like to keep the original actress for Diane, uh, Nadia Albina, who was born with a foreshortened right arm. And I, for one, think it's, a, it's great the character of Diane shares her actress's real-world condition. It's not treated as some flaw on her part. It's just simply a part of her life. 
I think it's important for shows to show that kind of representation and outlook on disabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, hopping on to the infamous Tectoyen, the scientist who found a timeless child, abused and experimented on them, became a leader of the Shadow Time Lord Division. The way the last finale hyped her up and made her so crucial to the Doctor's new backstory, she should be this huge character who's key to everything, you know? You can make her the standalone villain of a whole season, yet instead of Flux, she gets like one vague cameo in the third episode, talks a lot of shit in episode five, before just getting killed off in an anticlimactic way by Swarm. It's a very bizarre choice to go for, I feel. Such a character who plays a crucial role in the Timeless Children arc should be given more weight and be made into a bigger role. Especially since the long conversation the Doctor and Tectoyen had shown so much potential for an interesting dynamic. Uh, Tectoyen read like an emotionally manipulative mother, trying to gaslight this long strange child of hers that, you know, everything that's happening is her own fault. And that she owes everything good in life to Tectoyen, essentially kidnapping her as a child. Uh, it could have been an interesting debate on if you owe the successes in your life to the toxic uh, abuse and figures in your life that shaped your path. So I propose we first see her in the opening of episode two, War of the Suntarans, as this mysterious character who teases about how she is the one who saved the TARDIS from destruction by the flux in a cliffhanger of a Halloween apocalypse. Because it always bugged me how that massive world-ending cliffhanger got s resolved so offhandedly in the next episode, with the Doctor and companions just waking up outside of TARDIS in the Crimea. I felt like there was, I felt like we we're going to get a reveal later on, like there was more to it, but nope, nothing. So I wanted to give a clear outside influence reasoning on how they survived. She'd be the one who split up Yaz from the group instead of Yaz and Dan just randomly being teleported to where they needed to be, like modern day Liverpool and the Temple Atropos on the planet Time. Uh, during this new episode three, while well, the Doctor experiences what a past self, the mysterious fugitive Doctor did on the planet Time, that memory flashback would end with the fugitive meeting with Division's commander, who she calls her mother, who the Doctor recognizes as the mysterious woman she met earlier. Episode 4, Tech Turn would explain she'd been trying to tack down the source of the flux, you know, Swarm and Azure. Uh, and now that she has finally been reunited with her child, she offers a team up to, once again to take down Swarm. In return, she'll give the Doctor's memories back with the Biodata Modulator, perhaps better known as the Chameleon Arc. And as a small note, in my flux, the Chameleon Arc that holds the Doctor's, you know, timeless children incarnations would not be the fob watch like the one in human nature. Uh, my personal headcanon is that the fob watch is just one of several disguises a biodata modulator can have. I think it's kind of cheap making every modulator a fob watch just because it's what the Doctor and Master used in the series of like 10 years ago, even if human nature is one of my, is one of my absolute favorite stories. Uh, so to tie into the whole unsettling theme of a dark mother and daughter relationship, I feel like a children's music box being the shell for the community arc would be more fitting. Uh, if horror stories have told me anything, is that playing music from a music box is an easy but effective way to make things a bit more creepy. So back to the summary, the episode of the Doctor and Tectoyen teaming up is a, a redone version of Village of Angels. This would give us a more longer look at a toxic relationship Tectoyen has over the Doctor. Something I feel like Survivors of Flux only scrapped the surface off, so I feel like giving an extra episode to get into that would really benefit the two of them. The Doctor is so eager to learn about her past, she forgives the dismissive, secretive behavior of her, you know, mother, owner realizing later this patronizing behavior is how she's been treating Yaz all for a while. Tech Turns arc would culminate in a penultimate episode as her true intentions unrevealed, and Swarm takes a chance to gleefully inform the Doctor that the real power behind Flux lies with their mother, Tech Turn. Division and Tech Turn unleash the rift into universes, 
in order to acquire antimatter to form the flux, essentially clean up the mess they made when Swarm escaped imprisonment. Uh, when Tech turns to her child, confront the flux as seen in the ending of Halloween Apocalypse, she saw this as a chance to once again recruit her prize experiment, lying to her about Swarm causing the flux to manipulate the Doctor back into Division. Uh, her scheme blown, Tech turns tries to escape for the rift to another universe, possibly the one the timeless children came through. But as she goes, Swarm catches up with her and inflicts her with his power, her body turning to dust as she goes through the rift, leaving it vague if she lives or dies on the other side. So I hope by going in this more extended direction, the Doctor will learn from Tecton's toxic behaviour to make the original F Flux's ending of the Doctor's character arc in opening up to Yaz hopefully feel more natural. So on to Carvanista and the Lupari, uh, Doctor Who's attempt at Chewbacca, I guess. Uh, the big northern warrior dog was a surprise highlight of Flux, so I want to keep him in and hopefully offer some ideas on how to beef up the roles. I would change the reveal of Carvanista being a former companion to Doctor, you know, during her fugitive days, and be aware of who she was the whole time, because I feel like it doesn't add much and contradicts how Carvanista tried to kill the Doctor during the opening of Flux. Now Carvanista is more of a division guard assigned to the timeless child, the watchdog, if you will. However, he eventually takes pity on them after realising how manipulative uh, everyone has been by Tektion, and witnessing the latest in a long line of mind wipes and cellular modification using a timeless child whenever they get rebellious, in order for Tektion to get a fresh slate with a child, deep gaslighting them over and over in each new reset to get the perfect agent for the division. He would help the child escape and be settled into a new life in Gallifrey, the life our Doctor would know as their own. Tekton would know a Lupari was behind a child escape, but wouldn't know which one. So in revenge, she curses the entire race with species bonding, linking each Lupari to a specific human at birth. When that human dies, the connected Lupari will suddenly die too. This naturally becomes a massive source of grief to the Lupari. A once great warrior race, given a handicap for being connected to such a fragile, primitive race. It's pretty hard to lead a Lupari battle squad into battle on a 7th move of Baylor when your leading commander suddenly drops dead because a human called Kevin from Surrey had a fatal slip in the toilets. Over the years, they are overtaken in a rat race to the universe of alien warriors like the Sontarans, gifting them a rivalry that makes their confrontation in the Flux finale have more history to it. Despite the bond, the Lupari have no interest in actively stepping in to save the human race from constant threats that seem to haunt them, hence why we haven't seen any Lupari in intervention in past invasions or so, uh, reasoning that at least some humans are by extension Lupari will be kept alive. This changes the announcement of the devastating temporal storm that, that is the Flux, the hurricane of chaos that tears apart everything that comes in its way, and currently on its way to Earth. So the Lupari are like, oh shit, we have to actually save these guys now. Uh, this kickstarts a plan to save every human on Earth by, you know, kidnapping them and taking them aboard their ships. They claim it's for a noble cause, talking about the same life bond that the actual show talked about. It's only later in the series Dan and the Doctor suss out that the noble cause is really a cover-up for Lupari's own survival. I think this will be a better explanation to the whole species bonding thing in the series, because that felt pretty vague and out of character for what I learned about Lupari prior to this. Later on, I'll go into more detail what kind of new story impact it gives Carvinista and its dynamic with Dan, which is something I did like in the show and feel like that could have been explored more in depth. Next up, we've got Joseph Williamson, aka Mad Mole, a eccentric historical figure who kept showing up randomly throughout the series as this intended mysterious character, but personally I found the manner of his appearances more annoying and bewildering than anything else. The way he talked was infuriating, like he knew better but poorly explained it to everyone else, 
despite the fact that they are obviously in the same situation as him. He gives us a pretty basic explanation of how his tunnels work, and then he kind of just vanishes halfway through the finale. And I'm left like, we built a season building up this guy, and that's it? No real payoff? But as tempting as it is to cut him altogether, I do like the concept of him and how his tunnels were used, of giving this little-known historical figure a place in this big universal event. That's one of the show's biggest strengths in introducing the more minor kind of historical figures to the audience. I think I would try to correct it is less in the dialogue, so it's less in everyone's faces, present him as a more shadowy, tragic kind of figure, who's reaching the end of his life, lost within the tunnels and the places across the universe and time it takes him, effectively becoming an omen to the characters of the Flux's upcoming influence. But altogether, he's still pretty minor, so in another take, you could just cut him out entirely, I feel. Mm. Uh, On to Vinder and Bell, the space-faring, gun-toting couple who feel like they showed up from a failed TV pilot Chris Schimmel made, and including them here is his way of doing a backdoor pilot. That's the vibe I'm getting after how much focus was put on them. Uh, So when I started this little writing idea of, you know, redoing Flux, my idea initially from day one was just to cut these two out entirely or at the very least, make their roles much less padded, because ultimately, I feel like they are so disconnected from the bigger story. The subplots are such filler and take time away from what there should be the core characters. We spent more time watching these two just blunder about the universe than we did spending time with Kate Stewart, one of the most beloved characters of New Who making a long overdue return. Uh, I kept expecting to reveal that there were Galifians from the past ancient history, or perhaps members of the Division, only for the underwhelming realization that they're just people from, I guess, another secret organization? The home planet doesn't even have a home name, uh, and the way they kept showing Belle's pregnancy, I and a lot of other people got the feeling the child was supposed to be the, the doctor, you know, the original timeless child. Uh, those things, maybe the, the child route wouldn't have been the best way to go, but I feel like it could have at least added an interesting dimension to characters, but ultimately I felt it would make the series much more streamlined if they weren't in it. However, as time went on writing this uh, summary, I realised they added a little something to the series and eventually considered keeping one as the main recurring star and the other would be relegated to a more tragic flashback. And in the end, the one that would most likely be left standing as main would be Belle. Out of the two, I found her the most fun. Uh, a pregnant Asian woman doing a shootout with Cybermen? Sure, why not? That's new to the series. And she did add this good element of offering this outsider perspective to the audience. Through her, we got to see how the flux was affecting things on this much bigger cosmic scale. Uh, that's pretty neat, actually. We're so used to seeing things from just Earth's perspectives. Be cool to have a series that's a mixture of both viewpoints. So Harold Alterbell is that she and her husband, Vinder, were renegades from the Division, who realised just how immoral and overpowered the Division were after failing to speak out against the Grand Serpent's corruption and ran away before Vender was later tracked down and killed by the Grand Serpent, while Belle escaped with their unborn child. So while Vinder's role is much smaller, I am keeping an idea of him being the kind of good man who would speak up against the abuse of 40 and pay the price for it, now with his wife being the one to live up to those ideals. Uh, by the beginning of the series, we see a pregnant Belle on her way to Earth to track down a snake that killed her lover, and along the way become the witness to the travesty the Flux brings, before ultimately became, becoming part of the fight against the Swarm and the Santarans. Uh, so I'm essentially merging her original arc with Vinders from the original Flux. Hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on these two characters? I actually agree that, uh, well, it is, it's so very clearly, like, out of left field, these characters. Um, I love them, because they're very much more my style. <laughs> I, one thing I dislike a lot about New Who, um, and Classic Who uh, fell into that trap a lot, 
was that our companions are always humans, and it's boring. Yeah. Um, my favorite TARDIS team is Romana. Like, <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, I, I love having another Time Lord on the on the ship. I just think that is so much fun and so much cooler than ordinary person from England trouncing about. Ooh, who cares? <laughs> I know it's supposed to be, like, wish fulfillment for the viewer, but I have no interest in that. Um, <laughs> and so, Vendor and Bell... I thought, oh, could could they be added to the TARDIS team? Is that the is that the plan? And then they're written out, and I was super sad, uh, because I think having uh, alien uh, companions is not only cool, but also their arc was very interesting. I'm a big stickler for um, a soldier who must define the line where duty and honor lie, and where is what is right and what is wrong. Um, and I, my favorite TV show of all time is Babylon 5, and it is mm-hmm. built, it is built on that entire idea of where, where does patriotism and, and honor begin? To me, that was fascinating. His entire backstory about speaking out against the Grand Serpent and being punished for it. I was like, yeah, 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 this sounds awesome. Okay, where are we going? And then nothing happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, Belle, I thought, was an interesting idea. I really liked her Galavente across the galaxy, trying to find Vinder while all this shit is happening. I thought that was a fun way to do things. But it kind of just felt tacked on, and I didn't feel like the story went anywhere. I'm interested to see where do you go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do think that they were missed opportunities. And if I was rewriting it, I probably would have made them mainstays. So... Yeah, well, I'm hoping by cutting down on characters like Vinda and uh, Claire, uh, or you know, by having that absence, will give the other characters you know, a bit more you know uh, minutes to themselves to beef up their own story arcs. Mm. But yeah, you make good points, and you know, like I said early on, I wanted to scrap the two, but as I read other people's thoughts on them, I realized they made very good points, like you said about the idea of duty and honor and the consequences of doing the right thing. So in the end, I decided to you know, remodel things to keep those elements in, just perhaps, you know, not the same way the show did it. On to the baddies, the Ravengers. So, on one hand, I like the Ravengers a lot. Their designs are incredible. The show has been sorely lacking some creative designs and prosthetic masks for a while, so this was a great return to form, and both Swarm and Azure added some real sadistic menace to the story. Uh, the problem is, I've tried looking at the arc five different ways, and I still struggle to have a full idea what their actual deal is, uh, what their goal they're trying to achieve is. They talk about space and time being constant fighting forces against each other, and they want to unleash time itself. It feels interesting, but still vague on what that actually means. There's also the matter of Azure's role in the story. How she's introduced felt rather sloppy, and it's left unclear on what makes her so different from Swarm. You know, it looks like Swarm is very powerful already, so introducing another Ravager at the exact same time it doesn't really raise stakes. So I propose the idea that Swarm takes the focus while Azure is kept as a more incoming threat. One that's talked about a lot and makes the characters fear of her arrival. Because, you know, if Swarm is this bad, well, fuck, what is another one of these guys going to do? Uh, so give that tension across the series. Uh, another thing I liked a lot was, was their third wheel passenger, this humanoid mask being that it's, has its own eternal dimension, which acts as a living prison that can store thousands. Uh, I thought that was a great idea, so I'm keeping that in. But also wanted to drop in the idea that the passengers were like prototype for TARDISes in the dark times. And it's from them that trans-dimensional engineering that makes TARDISes bigger on the inside was perfected. My take on the Ravagers is like timeless children. They also fell from another universe. 
unique creatures with powerful temporal abilities, and Tecturn hoped to recreate her success with the Timeless Child by controlling them. However, they are much less easy to control than the Timeless Child, and having come from a universe where time flows very differently from their own, where time was a living sentient being, uh, much less linear, they seek to recreate the laws of time in this new universe to match their own, quite oblivious to the fact that doing so will severely damage everything, that these two universes just aren't compatible with each other's rules. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any thoughts on those guys? Well, I'll uh, just copy Paul Cornell from Twitter and just say glitter. <laughs> uh, yes. The Ravengers were such a cool idea. And then once again with Flux, like, it's a great idea! And then just kind of dropped. Yeah, I really dislike the ending, and I'm definitely going to go into more to that later. Uh, I'm yeah. hopefully going to give them a much more, you know, anticlimactic ending. Uh, but yeah. Um, and I remember one of the episodes that really stood out to me was the one where the Doctor and Sh uh, Swarm have this chat on the planet called Time. Mm. Um, and and that was and, and the the idea that time is a uh, is not only a fact of reality, but a resource that can be constrained and consumed. I thought that was such a cool idea, um, and how uh, the the nature of the universe cannot sustain both space and time. Um, it, it was like, oh, that's great, that's cool, you know, very metaphysical, um, and then we did nothing with it. So... Uh, I'm interested to see where you go with them because I really like the Ravengers, uh, and I and I'll tell you right now, if I was rewriting this, I would make them the main big bands and just get rid of Tectoon. But I also just don't like the Timeless Child thing anyway. So, uh, but uh, I'm interested to see where you go with them. Yeah, this series has so many villains. Yeah, you know, adding a level and be asinine. Speaking of which, <laughs> Grand Serpent. <laughs> So, much like Vindra Bell, I was very tempted to remove this new villain from the story altogether. Given the story has enough villains, old and new, of the Angels, the Sontarans, Division, and Swarm, uh, I feel like Division should have been just the main focus. But in the end, I relented, because I feel like the character has a very solid premise, backed by the brilliant performer that is Craig Parkinson. All together adds up to create a potential to become a brilliant recurring enemy in the future. Someone who feels like a true intergalactic criminal, like management for hire for alien invaders like Santarans. And the idea of him infiltrating UNIT from its very beginning is brilliant. Manipulating it, hidden in plain sight across the decades, it, it's great. The UNIT evidence show in the 70s is a much beloved one, so UNIT's return is always welcomed, especially the return of Kate Stewart. And the off-screen cameo from the Brigadier was really sweet, I'm not going to deny that. Mm. However, there's this one teensy problem with this idea though, I absolutely despised the execution of it. <laughs> so, the Serpent's infiltration of Unit is a recurring B-plot in Episode 5. Or, perhaps more accurately, a D-plot. Because, Christ, that episode had way too much subplots <laughs> going on. I'm just going to say this right now. Survivors of the Flux is what ruined the show for me. I was, like, a big defender of the series before then. A lot of my mm. friends disliked it, but I kept going into Oh, no, but this was really cool, though. This episode came on, I'm like... Oh, this isn't going to tie together neatly at all, is it? So that was just crushing. Uh, and this particular subplot with Unit was sold right from the get-go of that first scene set in 1958. It was so asinine, and that's not even addressing a Unit dating controversy, which, to you know, stop this episode from being five hours long, I won't go into too much detail. <laughs> feel, free, yeah, feel free to look up TARDIS Wiki. I'm sure we'll get you covered. <laughs> 
Sadly, it has nothing to do with the Brigadier's dating life. I'll, t- I'll let you know that now. <laughs> <laughs> but the opening problem is how it introduces the Grand Serpent into Unit. So let's break this down. That scene is about a government man tasked by the United Nations to create a task force that deals with threats in space. Meeting a total stranger while out shooting. Said stranger says he deals with threats from space, offering no evidence on this. And the government man is like, oh, thank God, I didn't know how to do this. Can you be in charge of this? And the stranger, acting so obviously evil, is like, sure thing. Now, please tell me you can see why I have an issue with this. <laughs> it's a recurring issue throughout the rest of his D-plot. The Grand Serpent isn't even trying to hide how he's up to no good. And Unit just gives him everything on a silver platter. Now, Unit being incompetent is an issue that pops up a lot, especially oh, yeah. during the later end of Moffat's era. But my point is, showing us that Unit were led by incompetent idiots right from the get-go feels pretty disrespectful to such an iconic element of Doctor Universe. And then there's the, you know, the dating issues. Like, that scene is set in 1958. I just don't get why they would set Unit up then, because canonically, you know, a lot of the, the alien you know, invasion attempts uh, that happened later in the 60s and 70s were what inspired Unit, so I just don't understand why you set it up. Like, you know, in Universe, there's Torchwood at a time doing this kind of stuff, but they're more, you know, they're more their own thing from the government. So I'll save talking about this about the specifics later. For now, I'll say my aim with the Grand Serpent here is to make his role more spread out and built upon with each appearance. Starting with him just being an unassuming face in the first episode, it's only with each subsequent appearance you realise Oh shit, there's more to this guy, isn't there? So from one evil rapscallion, we go to a beloved rapscallion, Professor Eustatius Jericho, which is the best name New Who has ever come up with. Uh, (laughs) For the most part, he's the character I'm going to touch least, purely because I already really liked what we got from him. He was a terrific supporting character who actually added some emotional depth to things, uh, beautifully played. And I know others who just like me wish he had become a full-time companion. He's yep. just so sweet and earnest. Like uh, this old guy who, stu- who, you know, he used to be a soldier. He's now studying physics. He housed bees. Yes, that's <laughs> perfect companion material. More of that, please. So while he's technically not essential to the story, for the sake of fun, I'm keeping him. The biggest changes are more so to do with how his story ends. And I can get into that later. So those are all the core Flux characters. Uh, do you have any questions before I hop into the, the main course and talk about the episode summaries? The unit dating controversy, like, I know that's been a whole big thing for many, yeah. many, many years. One thing that struck out when I was watching that episode was, is someone actually going to try and explain this and it just got more convoluted? Nope. Yeah, exactly. You said you're going to try and make that more of a significant plot point. Are you going to try and go to links to explain it or are you just going to just shove it under the rug and say, yeah, dating controversy, who cares? I'm going to explain things a bit more chronologically. So my headcanon is, you know, stuff like War Machine, uh, Web of Fear, they happened before UNIT. The invasion is, the let's say, the year or the year after UNIT gets set up. That's how it works for me, uh, headcanon and in universe, I feel. So, you know, having unit be, you know, somehow set up in the late 50s, it just doesn't make sense to me because those episodes mm. made it, you know, quite clear. Those events were taking fe- place in the 60s or, you know, 70s, one or the other. <laughs> Actually, you know, in my head, it's the 70s. It, it mostly takes place 70s. There is an in-universe uh, explanation for the unit dating uh, disaster. Uh, it, the show didn't give it, but other extended universe stuff like the books and Big Finish did a really good, you know, hi me, why me explanation of it all. So I'm not going to go into the unit dating controversy here of the story. I just want to make things more 
cleaner with uh, yeah. how each unit scene, you know, how they take place in the, in the timeline of units. Alrighty, so without any further ado, let's hop on into Halloween Apocalypse. So this episode would largely be the same with just some mild modifications, because as I said, uh, some people seem to hate this one. I don't think it was too bad. I think it started things off with a nice bang. But the opening would be quite different. So the cold open is set in the 60s. A secretive meeting with the United Nations discussing the recent attacks of the London Post Office Tower war machines, uh, aka Wotan, and the invasion of London subway by the Yeti. Uh, with these and other evidence of non-human interference, a task force is set up to deal with alien threats. I'd include a reference to the Brigadier, explain his absence from the meeting, and I'd also include a reference to Torchwood, explain them as an, as an organization that's been around since, you know, Queen Victoria that has essentially gone rogue from the government at this point. I just want to make things a bit more, you know, uh, cohesive to the larger, you know, Doctor Who mythology, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene's conclusion would be with a person called Prentice, who has remained silent in the corner of the room, volunteering to help set up the organization and unite humanity against any threats out there. And smash cut to the Doctor and Yaz, tied up to Carvinista's death trap in the air. And the opening from the actual episode would play out as it had there, as the two have a mad escape from the Kill Jones. It's an over-the-top but fun cold open, so I keep that bit in. Uh, maybe brush up the you know, CGI a bit, so it's not <laughs> the, you know, wicked of the rest as they're riding around. But it, it's a fun enough opening. I don't have too many, you know critical notes about it uh but basically my inclusion with units origin will hopefully start things off a bit more grounded and hopefully add some more intrigue into things you know i feel like if, if a series was open like that people like oh my god past units what what does this mean so jumping onto modern day you know modern day earth i want to show a bit more of dan and diane's normal life him being a you know not so legal tour guide it's it's a great way to introduce him so i want to keep that in uh show a few examples of dan having visions of the doctor uh, maybe the two have lunch with Dan's parents and go into Moore's life, like his divorce and recent, recent move. Uh, I think this will flesh him out better, as well as give his parents uh, an actual appearance before their sudden appearance in that one Suntaran episode, before they vanish, never to be seen again. So this way, you know, it'll just build up Dan's, you know, show to life a bit better and give those two a bit more film death. I just have issues with how his parents were shown. Like, I don't think they were there, but if, if they are going to be there as well as, you know, may as well have them outside of just the one episode. I would cut out entirely the subplot of the couple who live in Antarctica and that the woman who is secretly Azur, you know, who's forced into this new life, I guess is what the story was going for. Uh, that was a subplot that was really poorly explained to me and was not picked up on in the rest of the series. So I would drop that entirely and save Azur's return for later in the season. Uh, for now in this episode, Swarm would talk about wanting to find his sister. This way, we've got a bit more time to focus on the other characters. Vinda's role in this episode, which, you know, in the original episode, he was observing the beginnings of the flux wave on that, you know, observation station, will be essentially replaced by Belle, who's on her way to Earth in a stolen Lupari ship, and she'll be the first to witness the flux. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm, like, merging their two story arcs into mm-hmm. one. Uh, as mentioned before, Claire is Diane now. So after Doctor and Yaz escape from Dan's shrinking house, it's now, it's now Diane who shows up on the way for a date with Dan and recognizes the Doctor before she too is kidnapped and sent back in time by the Weeping Angel. So I'm just keeping things, you know, why introduce this random Claire character when Diane is already there? So hopefully this will make mm-hmm. things, you know, a bit more constructive. The rest of the plot would virtually be the same. You know, Diane gets kidnapped by Carvinista. Doctor and Yaz basically kidnap him from his first kidnapping, uh, fly a corrupted TARDIS into the flux in a failed attempt to stop it. You know, those kind of stuff um, I'd keep. I think, like I said, I don't have any too many issues with it. That comes later. Uh, would mainly be odd dialogue choices. I would try correct if I could. 
Like there was one line in particular where the doctor is investigating Dan's disappearance, and it's like, why would someone of a house like this have such a fancy computer? Like, I don't get it. Like, yeah, it does turn out the computer is a, a shrink ray bomb, but I'm just a bit baffled about the line of inquiry that led to that assumption. You know, it just looks like a pretty standard laptop in a standard house. And I can say that because I have both of those things in England. <laughs> so lines like that just baffled me and my friends. And I just think it's a, it's a fairly simple fix. <laughs> so on to the next episode, War of the Sontarans. Uh, Cold Open is set during an undefined time during Unit's early years. Uh, there was talk of a meteorite shower falling to Earth, tying it into Spearhead in Space, the third Doctor's first story, and the beginning, the official beginning of the unit era of the show after their appearance in the evasion, uh, which is one my, my favorite second Doctor story, just at the end. Could possibly keep reused audio code for the big deer, like the, the TV episode did. It's a nice mm. nod to him. A UN manager has discovered something important and is rushing to try and find big deer or anyone to warn unit. But before he can get inside the old unit base, he is killed from within. As a large snake worms its way out of his dead body and joins back with a shadowy figure watching nearby. So, you know, you've you sussed out as a grand serpent, but let's point mm-hmm. the character, you know, let's say this hypothetical audience of this hypothetical, you know, take by me, uh, they can't really connect it yet because he's just seemed so unassuming in his first appearance. This will build up that kind of, you know, murder mystery narrative I I do across each cold open of the of the series, you know, all of it leading up to modern day. Uh, rest of the you know the new opening past the p- p- cold open would have gone into more detail on how the Tardis survived the flux and landed in the Crimean War by introducing a mysterious woman and have it so she states she's the one who saved them for the Doctor's risky plan and she kidnaps Yaz to take her to Planet Time to prepare defenses against the Avengers and to give the Doctor incentive to track down t- uh, the Planet Time later. Mm. Uh, because in the real story, it bugged me how Yaz and Dan were just seemingly randomly teleported to just the right places to go to. So for my take, I give it a more, you know, controlled reason why Yaz was sent to the Temple of Atropos. Mm. Uh, I'd have Belle fit in for Vandersville and Atropos as the other person Yaz finds on the planet as they try to work out the secret of the Mori, uh, you know, how they control time. I just have it more so that Belle, you know, landed on the planet deliberately instead of being randomly teleported there. Because as I say, it's just, it's just cheap storytelling. Mm. Uh, as for Dan, I wouldn't send him back to his own time just yet. I felt like in a full flux we got, Dan and the Doctor didn't really spend much time together. So I would take this time for this to be the story after his debut for him to really develop the Doctor companion dynamic and for Dan to learn the ropes about time travel and fighting the Sontarans in Crimea. You know, I want the Doctor to firsthand see how you know passionate and caring Dan is. You know, he'll run right into the you know the Light Brigade battle just to save a few people. Uh, and she'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to adopt this guy as my companion. <laughs> so aside from cutting up the modern day Santara invasion of Liverpool, I'd largely keep the story the same. It's one of the most solid stories in the 13th Doctor era, I think. Uh, I thought the alternative history of the Korean War with Santara's replacing the Russians was really cool. Uh, it added this what the fuck factor. Uh, it's the best that Santarans have been in ages. They've been such a joke in a recent you know, Moffat era. Mm. So it's just great. To, I love the new redesign. They look like absolute ugly dirt covered bastards uh they feel like they feel like more like klingons again you know the whole mm. war obsessed race that's how they work best as that i feel instead of just comp- comedic relief uh no offense Drax, i do love you dearly <laughs> <laughs> and in particular i loved how it focused on historical nurse mary sequel uh she was a remarkable person who never quite got the same public legacy as someone like florence nightingale so i think showing her in a hotel hospital was a great touch 
Uh, I think if we kept Dan in, we could have some really humane moments between him and Mary and the soldiers as they, as they try to hold back the seemingly impossible while the doctors one busy plotting on how to fix the bigger temporal events. It could be a nice, more fleshed out way to discover just how passionate about helping people Dan is. Uh, and, you know, as this is a fun suggestion, we could have Dan saving a soldier's life by inventing CPR a good century early. <laughs> I feel like John Bishop would have a lot of fun singing Stay Alive in a combined setting. You know, that's the song you sing what, you know, to the beat too, where you do CPR. Yeah. So just have, you know, Dan surrounded by soldiers and sometimes just singing, ha, 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 stay alive. <laughs> I think that would be, I think that'd be wild. Amazing. Uh, I'd end the story roughly the same as the original version with the cliffhanger of Yaz and the Doctor encountering Swarm and Atropos. Before arriving at Temple, I'd have the Doctor drop off Dan at his time and place, thinking she's keeping him safe there. Only he's about to discover two pretty terrible things waiting him. One, his house was shrunken down to the size of a toy. Uh, all his belongings inside it. He's bemoaning the fact that his signed Liverpool, you know, T-shirt was is in there. Uh, and that he can just stuff his whole house in his pocket now. And secondly, he sees in a distance Liverpool Stadium, filled with battleships parked in as a squadron of Santans can match marching up the streets. Uh, this will be like a wild 2001 Plow the Apes kind of cliffhanger for Dan. Just this, mm. oh, I thought we fixed history, but here they are. And shit, I don't have the doctor to help me out. So basically, I'm taking the, the Liverpool, the modern day Santaran invaded Liverpool arc from the original War of the Santans and putting it into the third episode. Because I feel like, you know, we we thought we saw the last of the Sontarans in the episode two, and then they come back as the main as kind of the main baddies in the finale. So here I want to keep the idea of them being this you know presence throughout, basically. Uh, on to episode three, Once Upon Time. Cold Open would again show Unit, this time taking place around the fourth Doctor era, as soldiers talk about how the Doctor is now off-world and you know, assumedly no longer scientific advisor. Uh, if we could see like a cameo from Bessie the car, I think that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't seen Bessie in ages. We'd once again see a unit board member get killed inside his car, just like in the uh, in episode five of the original Flux. In my take, I used this as a moment to reveal Prentice as the killer. Uh, jumping forward a month with Prentice enjoying his new promotion and exploring the unit vaults, one of the many artifacts being a familiar blue box. That according to the vault's head archivist, was recovered in 1967 in the village of Mediton, following the disappearance of everyone inside the town. I felt like showing some of the consequences of Village of Angels just before that actual episode can add some foreshadowing and tension to it all. Uh, and just as a fun idea, we kind of comment about um, the idea that Unit has had, you know, the TARDIS all this time while the third Doctor was on Earth and they never brought it up. Uh, I want to give this, you know, this line about the Brigadier being like, hey, we cannot tell the Doctor about this working TARDIS. If he finds out, he is just going to leave us. So do not tell him about this. That's kind of my, my headcanon. Time Lords, vanish him on this earth. We have a way to get him off, but uh, let's just keep him here. He's useful. <laughs> yeah. So this story would be mainly split between the Doctor's side of exploring her past while she's trapped in a temple storm with the Mori and of Dan being on modern day Liverpool trying to infiltrate the Sontaran base. I felt like Dan had nothing much to do in the original version of his story. Like, he's also caught in the, that kind of temple storm. Uh, he talks like a vision of Diane and Joseph Williamson, but it just doesn't really add anything. So I felt, as I mentioned earlier, we, we should push his subplot from the original War of the Sontarans into this story. would be largely similar to that version. Dan will be rescued by his parents. Uh, then Liverpool was the first city, taking an upcoming large-scale Suntaran invasion, and he'd go on a one-man, you know, walk-armed rampage into Suntaran command centre. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I change things a bit so that he inspires others to take the fight sometimes. To like, oh my god, that's Dan from the pub. He's attacking these alien potato men with a frying pan. I mean, shit, if he can do it, we can all do it. So it's just, <laughs> he just accidentally creates an army. Uh, and I, to give Dan more agency with the story, he'd use the Sontaran ship to activate communications to Carvinist and Lupari and bully Carvinist into rescuing him. Like, hey, mate, I escaped you, but I'm down here. It's part of your duty or whatever to kidnap me. Come save me from these potato men. Uh, <laughs> and Carvinist is like, oh, shit, he's going to get the both of us killed. I have to get down there right now. So I just feel like, you know, instead of an original with Carvinista just saving a day, here I want to give Dan, like, you know, he's the, he's the reason Carvinista was there. As for the Doctor, Yaz and Bell, I would keep the original idea of them being pulled back and forth between personal moments in their past, as well as little glimpses into the future, and see people in the past be re recreated by each other, as I felt that was a neat, you know, bizarre trip that's not really done much in the series. Yeah. Uh, it's something that the audience have done before, but fairly new for the series, so personally... I welcomed it. It was quite a little experimental take. Uh, we can take this chance to learn about Belle's backstory, uh, discover from her perspective that Prentice on Earth is actually the Grand Serpent of the Division. While Yaz would probably have the smallest amount of focus in his new version, ideally I still try to give her moments that go more into the deeper character and a complicated, you know, unrequited feelings for the Doctor. For the Doctor, I definitely keep the main chunk of the original story of exploring an event from a hidden past on a planet time of her two last encounter with Ravagers and keeping a return of Joe Martin's The Fugitive Doctor. Uh, that was a really fun surprise, and one I thought was very much needed. I feel like The Fugitive Doctor is really not showed as well as she should have been. Uh, so much so that when I rewatched the episode with my dad, the surprise just meant nothing to him. He just had a black expression on his face. And like I just had to nudge him, like, do you remember that person? He's like, no. He's like, that's The Doctor. I was like, is it? <laughs> so, you know, just... Should have treated the Fugitive Doctor a bit better, but she is getting a comic series and big finish mm -hmm. soon, so hopefully more representation soon. I love her glasses, by the way. Oh, same. It's great. I, I love her whole costume. Uh, yeah. That presence she has. I feel like the Fugitive Doctor should get more TV appearances. You know, and just, you know, explain where she actually fits in a timeline, because <laughs> I don't like the idea that she's a, uh, a timeless child incarnation of the Doctor, because it just doesn't fits like why would she call herself the doctor why would she have the blue police box uh i'm a sucker for the season 6b theory that she's an incarnation between Troughton and pertwee even then that kind of feels iffy so i just want an actual explanation of her please back to the timey-wimey uh vision stuff uh this would explain the swarm this will be the first appearance of azure uh, so the Doctor will learn, oh, this is how powerful they are when the two of them together. Yeah, I really can't let him find where the Zerb is. It would remain largely similar to the TV version. Uh, the Doctor would stop the Ravagers from you know, unleashing time. Uh, I go more into their respective punishments, explaining that Azure's powers are more controlled on Swarm, and so she will be imprisoned with a false life. Her essence put into a new life every time one dies as eternal punishment. Forced to be part of the small lower life forms, she threatened to extinct. As was in case Division should have need to reclaim her uh, powers for their own use. So it's kind of like, you know, forced witness protection for, uh, yeah. an, uh, you know, a Cthulhu, let's say. <laughs> uh, for the ending of Dan's subplot, after he and Kavnista blow up the Santan ship fleet, they're cornered by the last remaining Santan commander who wounds Kavnista before he himself is killed from the back by a disguised woman. As she approaches them, she scans Dan and Covenista with a wonky-looking device that looks like a Brutian classic sonic screwdriver wired and duct-taped to a small monitor. She's like, 
Let me see. You're leaking Arton energy, wearing a mid-19th century military uniform, and you've just invaded the heart of a Zantan invasion center with a frying pan. I'm going to take a confident guess and say you're with the Doctor. Uh, Dan's like, oh my god, that was so awesome. Uh, who are you? Uh, taking off her hood, the woman's like, I'm Kate Stewart, formerly unit, full-time Earth Defender. Welcome to the Resistance. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Kate Stewart. Uh, I love, you know, when the next time trailer showed she was coming back in flux, I was like, oh my god, yes! Yeah. And then she didn't really get anything to do. So for my take of Flux, I wanted to show her sooner and give her, you know, actually show the resistance. You know, give her some actual badass moments because she's she's freaking Kate Stewart. Give her badass moments. Uh, the ending of the Doctor's subplot will be largely similar to the original one. You know, she gets the to save herself. Yes and Bell, you know, they try to fail to trap uh, Swarm. Only this time, before she leaves the Temple Storm, the Doctor stays just long enough to see her past self, the Fugitive, Meet a figure after successful takeover of Atropos, the true leader of division, someone a fugitive doctor calls Mother, Tech Tien, the woman who saved the TARDIS in a previous episode, the same one who just now shows up to the doctor after Swarm and his passenger leaves. She's like, good, you finally figured out the truth. Now the real mission can begin. On to Village of the Angels. Uh, this one, I love trouble figuring out how to best do it, because like, it's my favourite episode from Flux, uh, but I was struggling to think how I could make it work with the you know, with the division more. So I think I've hopefully got it sorted. Uh, cold open. London, unit headquarters, 2017. Long-standing chair member Prentice tells that despite his efforts, unit needs to be wound down as soon as possible. Instead, Kate reveals to him she's tracked down all evidence of his meddling over the decades and knows what he really is. She arranges for his capture by unit soldiers, only to find out some of the soldiers are part of the Grand Serpent's control, leading to escape, and Kate is forced to go on the run underground Leading the apprentice to claim that uh, she's missing in action, presumed dead, and he now has full control of a unit, leading to its gradual closing. So this way, you know, I didn't like how uh, they, they handled Kate's first appearance in Flux. She's like, oh, I know you're a bad guy, but I'm just going to assume you're going to pack your bags and leave, and I'm going to go home. I'm still nothing, you know, I'm not going to tell the rest of you know about this. It's just, why would you do that, Kate? Get, get the soldiers in, the rest of this guy. So, you know, hopefully this will add more, you know, dramatic urgency to things. For the Doctor and others on Atropos, this takes place right after we left them. Tex Hyun explains that the key to stopping Swarm, rediscovering Azure and gaining the full power to complete the Flux Wave lies within a runaway Division operative. She asks for the Doctor's help in tracking down this renegade agent. In return, not only will they save the universe, but Tex Hyun will restore the Doctor's missing memories. She makes a big show of missing the Doctor, of how hurt she was when her child left. Uh, she drops a few condescending lines here and there that hint at her disapproval of the choices the Doctor has made. In particular, she refers to Yaz as the, the comedian, someone always trying to blend in, adapt to their needs, and approve of those bigger than her. Yaz naturally doesn't trust having to take and go with them, and the Doctor isn't fully buying the Mother Act either, but she's far too intrigued for her own good uh, to get to know this person better, you know, this, know this person who virtually shaped her course in life, and to possibly reclaim her past life to decline you know, joining up with her. So Doctor, Yaz, and Tectian return to Tardis, while Belle returns to her own travels, and throughout the episode we'll see her, you know, little scenes of her seen the fallout of a flux event, you know, through her own eyes. I will say, we'll, we'd cut out that rubbish CGI Dalek shot from Once Upon a Time. None of that. That's the worst <laughs> CGI. Uh, the three of them follow a chronal disappearance trail that leads back to a small English village. 
Meditan in 1967, where a girl has gone missing. Tecton and Yaz agree to help look for the girl while the Doctor tracks down the, the disturbance trails to Diane. But Yaz soon clicks on how little Tecton actually cares about a missing child. Just as Tecton tricks Yaz into being captured and sent back in time by an angel as she refuses to share her child. Back in modern day, we see Kate Stewart talking, uh, taking Dan and Carvinister to the base of operations uh, where they're countering the Sarantan occupation, as well as to root out corruption within the unit uh, inside the Williamson tunnels. Its underground nature offering strategic hiding while also scanned reveals a large amount of dimensional energy, similar to the late rift in Cardiff. Uh, doors seem to lead to other planets and time periods, but sometimes people don't make it back from the other side, so it's forbidden to go in. Occasionally looks like ghosts of screaming people are sent through the hallways, dragged into time period doorways. It's speculated that these are the temporal echoes of victims plucked from time, in between being taken from own time and arriving at a new temporal and spatial location. Dan and Carvinista have an annoyed banter that leads into honest conversation between the two, as Carvinista admits the truth of the Dupare bond, that they die if all humans die. Uh, Dan is pretty horrified by this and wants to find a way to free the Dupare of this abuse. Uh, you know, he, he believes that they should live their own life. But Kate is like, hey, I appreciate you want to help, but the sad fact is we actually need to rely on this bond right now. The Dupari's co cooperation and their shield around the Earth is the only thing stopping the Suntarans of Flux outright flooding us. So it's mm. kind of a, you know, a battle of interest. You know, do you give these people freedom or is their own subjugation a benefit for you? Dan sees the ghost of Yaz dragged through a door and he, you know, without a second thought, dashes for that door to help her and both arrive in the medicine village of 1907. After getting reacquainted with each other, Dan and Yaz track down the missing child and try to figure out the mystery of the bubble uh, around the village. From here follows their subplot and original story fairly neatly. Uh, the 1967 plot follows the same basics as the TV version. Uh, the house under siege by the angels as they try to get a hold of Diane as a doctor and Jericho with limited, you know, almost reluctant aid from Tecton to tie hold them off. The whole house under siege was an aspect of the episode I really liked, so I keep that roughly the same. I love the how the angels creatively used, like, you know, the vision of the angel shown for the piece of paper, and when the doctor tries to burn that paper, the, a the angel turns into fire. That was, mm. I thought that was really cool. As things heat up within the house, it's revealed roughly the same way as in the TV episode, the psychic merging of the doctor and Diane, that the renegade division agent is the angel who's now hiding within Diane's mind. The rogue angel holds secrets the division refuses to allow to fall into hands of others, including the clue of uh, how to escape to another universe. The angels chasing after Diane and the ren renegade angels are pure weeping angels who are against alignment with division and are seeking information for themselves to take over division and its, you know, its assets. As the Doctor, Diane, and Jericho try to escape through the caves, Jericho is touched, uh, a dust, you know, lands in his eyes, and he's separated from the others back in time. The further Doctor and Diane go into caves, they see there are already angels within, forming from the very rocks after being held in hibernation within for a very long time. However, to their shock, it seems these angels are not after them. In fact, they seem to be fighting against the angels chasing them. Uh, the Doctor is very easy, uneasy about what, have caused, what could have caused an angel civil war. As they make their way to the clearing, Tecton finally bothers to show up and she, you know, condescendingly congratulates the Doctor on finishing the mission of protecting Diane of the pure angels and getting to her where she needs to be, with the sentry post of division-led weeping angels, placed across various spots and caverns across several locations on numerous planets for just this location, to find and recall lost division assets. In this case, this means both the Doctor, the renegade angel, and Diane, or rather, the true entity buried deep within Diane, 
the princess advantages, sister to swarm azure. Remember when I said two for one deal? I lied. It's a three for one character deal. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor has no desire for either her or Diane to be taken by division, but regrettably, she has no choice as her body is turned into a weeping angel and recalled back to division. So I have some friends who disagree with me here, but personally, I love the hell out of the village of Angel's Cliffhanger. That transformation feat scene felt so shocking that I was totally kind mm-hmm. of keep that in. Um, my goal with this ultimate taken episode was to give Doctor and Tecton more of an ever-shifting and dubious dynamic. Uh, explain the purpose of the Weeping Angels a bit better, because I felt a bit flimsy in a TV episode. And my idea of having Diane be Azure was admittedly made with shock twist value, but also I felt it made more sense to have Azure hidden form be a big mid-season reveal, rather than have it happen at the very beginning with a nobody character and be instantly forgotten about. And now, onto Survivors of the Flux. Oh boy. Now this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is a story that made me just lose faith in the entire season. Uh, it was just a massive pitfall. It's a mess. There's way too much going on, and not in an engaging, interconnected way. Um, I've already gone into detail my thoughts on the Grand Serpent subplot, and hopefully offered an alternative way this could have been improved upon by spreading across the cold opens of the season. Uh, but this story's real big offender to me is the Yaz, Dan, and Jericho subplot, which is a shame, because on paper, it sounds great. Companions trapped for years in the past by the Doctor, uh, that sounds like it could be a really emotional story that, that forces them into a tough position of fending themselves. We got some of that, but it's buried under so much fluff. It drags the plot to a slow crawl each time they're on screen. Uh, from wannabe Indiana Jones scenes to a funny but out-of-place scene with a fortune-telling hermit with the worst prediction ever to a scene with a great wall of China that goes nowhere, inexplicably writing a large enough message to Carvinist's spaceship next to the great wall of China, hundred years before the ship is meant to be there, adds nothing to the plot because Carvinista can't even go back to time. So why would you spend that time on it when a runtime could have been used to beef up one of the six other subplots going on? Uh, Kate Stewart, the great returning icon of the Moffat era, only has two scenes in the TV episode because we had to introduce a wise-cracking hermit. Uh, and a lot of my friends love the Hermit, but... <laughs> so did I, to be honest. I know you do, but I'm sad to say I'm, I'm cutting him out. <laughs> I think there was some behind-the-scenes production issue on why the Great Wall of China scene is the only time we see Dan and Jericho with beards. Like, you know, maybe they got, it got itchy or something and it just refused to wear other scenes, but it just felt weird. Like, mm. one second there's a beard, the next they're gone. It's like, okay, <laughs> you guys shave real quickly. Uh, it made me watch an episode of Slog because I knew that subplot wouldn't amount to anything, aside from the ending where the show finally decided to give an explanation on what the deal with Joseph Williamson is. And then there's the Texan and Doctor subplot. One big exposition in just one room. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a story that's just two characters talking. This story did have an interesting element, like revealing more about the division and the setting of an observation between two universes is rather neat. Uh, like I said before, when the ball got rolling, Tecton and the Doctor had an interesting toxic mother and daughter-like relationship. It left me wishing there was more to it. So I'll try to break down each subplot in this new rewrite of mine and go by how I'd hopefully fix things. Uh, once again, this is where the hammer really comes into play to knock things into shape. Uh, cold Open would be on Halloween night, just before the Flux's arrival, uh, allowed for the Sontarans to enter the planet and slip back through time. We see Grand Serpent fully in control of the unit and other military operations 
uh, shut down weapon defenses, allowing his patrons to sometimes to pass through, bringing the serpent arc up to date with everything else. For Belle's subplot, I'd have her investigate the people sworn and passenger kidnapping, and she ends up being trapped within passenger herself, similar to what happened to Vinda in the episode. Uh, I want to go into more detail about what kind of you know, nightmare it must be like to be inside passenger, because when the idea of a sentient prison was you know, described in the, early in the season, I thought it sounded amazing, it sounded haunting. But when we actually saw it, it's just this big empty space. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like it'd be more creepy if there's like people like screaming in the background. Starting off with the subplot, I've made my dislike quite clear. Uh, we'll start with Yaz, Dan, and Jericho. Unlike the show, I wouldn't immediately start with, with a four-year time jump. I saw off pretty much right after we left them in a story, as they returned from the quantum extraction bubble the village was in to return to the real world of 1901. As Dan leads the others to the Joseph Williamson tunnels, only to find they're not working anymore, and they can't return to the modern day. Uh, for the sake of simplicity, for future reference, we'll give these guys the, the band name, the Time Trapped Trio. Uh, the trio encounter the ghostly Victorian man they've bumped into across their ventures, and Dan, being the Liverpool uh, historical buff, figures out it's Joseph Williamson himself, who, from his perspective, uh, is meeting the Time Trapped Trio for the very first time. He talks about how he was building tunnels as a way for humanity to hide when the cataclysm he witnessed within tunnels uh, arrived. The portal has been largely inactive, only flaring up briefly, allowing him to glimpse the future and other worlds. However, he ends up trapped and stranded from his own time when a rare item he brought into the tunnels seemingly overloaded the portals. The time trap trio figure out the tunnel's dimensional gateway properties only activate in the future because the quantum effects of the incoming flux must have interacted with the dormant properties of the dimensional tunnels, just like whatever item Joseph Williamson must have brought into the tunnels did. So they set out to track down any strange item that fell from space uh, that may have fallen through time and space to, to reactivate the tunnel so they can return to modern day. Across the episode, we cut back and forth to the time trio with time passing with each jump, keeping some of the Indiana Jones-styled uh, exploration scenes until finally two years have passed, meaning there's plenty of wiggle room for the inevitable big finish box sets. <laughs> uh, over time, they've attracted attention of some dangerous people who don't like these three people, you know, poking their noses in their private business, uh, you know, trying to obtain their, their own not entirely legally obtained collection of artifacts. I'd keep the boat scene from the TV episode when an assassin takes cyanide after he fails to kill them. Uh, while Yaz is having that scene where she's re-watching a holographic message the Doctor left her, I'd want to give Dan and Jericho a scene for just the two of them, which I confess is based on a fan fiction I never got around to fully writing at the time, in between the, the airing of two episodes. Uh, I was going to call it Dan and Jericho's Marvelous Body Dumping Adventure. Uh, because you've got these two super sweet guys being put in this awful position where they have to dump a dead body overboard, and they just don't show it in the actual episode, which I think is travesty. Um, so, you know, I can just imagine Dan taking inspirations from Weekend at Bernie's to help sneak the body past people. That could be a good laugh. But I'd also want to give Dan and Jericho this pretty deep conversation about the state of things. Really get into how the last two years, uh, going on to, you know, how it's affected uh, the, the trio. But both admit that just after a day of working outside, alongside the Doctor, they both want more. You know, they're both these kind of middle-aged men. They've, they thought they were nearing the end of their lives, but they... Everything they've discovered with the Doctor has inspired more within them. You know, it should be this bittersweet scene of each other questioning if they would be worthy like Yaz to be a full-time assistant to the Doctor or if they're too old for it. Uh, to wrap up their time-trapped hero, they finally find the right kind of spatial artifact and now they escape assassins within the temple. Afterwards, they return to the Joseph Williamson tunnels and reactivate it, 
opening the doorways into other times and worlds, and also managed to make Joseph Williams uh, himself tangible again. But before they can pass through the door to return to the present day, someone else steps out of the doors, the Grand Serpent. To explain his sudden appearance, let's rewind to the other side of the episode. The Doctor arriving on a Division station, set in between the two universes after Tectian had angels transform and transport her into their stone angel form. As she puts it, it was her way of showing she could make the Doctor's greatest fears come true easily, while also gifting her what she wanted the most, her own past memories. It's a real twisted version of the carrot and stick approach parents can do on their kids to get what they want. Except here it's pushed to extremes, because Tectian is that bloody extra. Uh... <laughs> On the ship, the Doctor learns the same thing she does in the TV episode about the nature of the ship. Uh, the Ood is still there as a division operative. Uh, now, you know the show is low on budget when they reuse the Ood costume. There's been kind of a rule of thumb ever since the Doctor's wife all the way in Series 6. But I like the Ood, so this one can stay. I'd probably just give his design a more unique look to him, like scars or missing an arm. Just something to make him distinct from the Ood's of past. Uh, but I also have another division operative on the station, the Grand Serpent. He and Tecturn have a clear kind of rivalry going on. The Serpent makes it clear he's against the idea of abandoning this universe. They have total control of it. Um, just to set up shop in a new, unpredictable universe is asinine to him, but Tecturn shuts him down. Also captured is Diane, uh, who Division are hooking up to the station's engines. They plan to revert her back to a dormant Azure entity, uh, or you know, inside her, and hijack her abilities to power the immense energy needed to transport the whole Division into the next universe to start over. The Doctor is naturally angry, and it's like, wait, I thought you were going to use these powers to stop the Flux, you know, prevent Swarm from destroying everything. And Tecturn is like, oh dear, haven't you worked it out yet? Swarm didn't create the Flux. We did. She talks about how during a time war, the Division went into deep hiding to avoid a conflict, and when they returned, they found a changed universe they could no longer manipulate as freely as they once had. Their existence becoming more well-known thanks to the mass discovery from the Matrix, and former agents, you know, going rogue and reading the secrets. Swarm breaking out of prison was the last sort of prison, so like frustrated children who can't get what they want, they decide to break the whole universe and just move on to the next, generating the flux storm to decimate everything to, to prevent Swarm from following them, and achieving his dream of breaking the web of time. However, Tectoon was forced to halt their plans when two things happened. The energy source they needed to escape to the other universe was taken out of their reach when an angel sent to capture Diane went rogue and sent her back in time instead. And secondly, the Doctor flew the TARDIS in front of the flux alerting Tecturn to her presence. By that point, after some centuries, Tecturn had finally realised that her missing experiment, the source of mortality and her child, was the same person as this Doctor, the renegade whose interference and mess of Division's interference without Doctor even realising in the past. Tecturn saw this as an opportunity to reunite with her missing child, and once again make them her prized asset. Perhaps use the Doctor as a symbol of peace, or a bargaining piece, for when they enter the universe they, uh, their beloved Doctor came from, you know, uh, from that, you know, the other side of the worm hell the Tecturn found a doctor from. The doctor's tempted to return to the universe she came from. You know, she wants to learn about her true origins, but she's not going to let this universe die just as so she can. So she tries to make Diane out of the ship's engine, leading to this tense cat and mouse chase with Tecturn and the weeping angels against the doctor in this you know, multiverse ship. Uh, to the doctor's surprise, the Grand Serpent even helps her out as he finds a plan of flux foolish when it can still regain control of the situation within the universe. You know, he can't control the universe if there isn't one remaining. 
However, when an inactive doorway opens, the Grand Serpent sees his chance and escapes from the increasingly dangerous station. On the other side, he comes across the time trap Tio. He thanks them for helping his escape and explains in the glory days of the Division, they have created a secret network of quantum tunnels connecting various times and worlds together to allow the Division agents to have secret backdoor entrances to these places without need for the time vortex. However, Tech Tion had the secret network closed. Knowing the Doctor has, has about a chance of stopping a flux of a companion around, he gives them the option to go inside the door he left them from uh, so they can enter the heart of vision itself. Dan volunteers to go in while Jericho, Joseph and Yaz go for the door, using the modern day tunnels to reunite with Kate's resistance squads. Now alone and armed with knowledge of the future and ways of contacting some interested parties, the Grand Serpent kind of smugly walks off, leading to his decades worth of living on Earth and manipulating unit we saw in the past hold opens. So much like a snake, you know, biting its tail, it's come full circle. Back on a universal ship, the Doctor manages to eject the angels out in the void between universe, but she is left cornered by Tectian. However, they are both surprised by the arrival of Swarm, who has been secretly keeping tabs on the Doctor and building up a psycho-quantum bridgeway by absorbing the matter of the remaining civilians on hundreds of half-dead planets ravaged by the Flux. Knowing the Doctor will lead them to his sister Azur and to his old mother, the woman who found him in Azur and tried to force them to be assets like she did to the timeless child's. Uh, the Doctor is like, if you say we're not so different, I'm going to bite you. Because <laughs> we've had this discussion in the past, but we're both just so sick of the, we're not so different, you and I, for <laughs> kind of speeches. Yeah. So I just want the Doctor to be like, if you say that, I will bite your ankles. <laughs> uh, with Swarm's aid, Azure uh, emerges from within Diane's form and bake her out of the energy conversion cage. Before they return to the planet Time to use their combined powers to unleash the forces of Time, they seek the revenge on Tectian. As she slowly turns to dust, she tries and fails to regenerate and begs for the Doctor's help. Uh, but the Doctor just stands there, unsure how to respond to this person who put her through so much pain back as a child and still used her here now. Uh, Tectian runs in a now slowly closing portal to the other's universe, but it looks like she's almost fully destroyed by the time she gets through. After that, the original cliffhanger scene for the TV story... Sontarans invade the tunnels, uh, shooting up Yaz and the uh, Resistance, and the Doctor is about to be attacked by the Ravengers. So, my reasoning for the changes in the story is to hopefully clear up some motives in the original story. Uh, it seemed odd to me that in the original story, Tecton wanted to use the Flux to destroy everything, only because the Doctor now knows about the Division's experience and the, the truth of the Timeless Child. If that's the reason you've activated the Flux, then why would you bring the Doctor to Division? Why would you leave that secret message in the Matrix that hints towards the Timeless Child? Remember that Brendan subplot in Series 12? The immortal policeman who this whole time didn't actually exist and it was this poorly explained metaphor for the Timeless Child in the Matrix? The show hinted that there's some kind of apology message Tecton left behind for her child, but that just doesn't fit in line with Tecton we see in the show, who would destroy literally everything just because the Doctor knows about the Timeless Child now. Uh, it just seems like a big contradiction, so I've hopefully addressed that here. Uh, I also took this opportunity to give Dan Serpent a more flashed out backstory. This former division leader who loves the power, but dislikes the direction. So he's basically taking the opportunity to set up his own empire, starting from scratch on Earth, and reaching out to empires like Centaurans. Often his services offer an easy invasion in return for some juicy uh, bonuses. So, so what I'm trying to get at with all the villains is I'm trying to connect them all to division. Because um, again, Dan Serpent just seems to be, in the TV episode, he's just, is his own thing. Uh, I think it'd make more sense if he was like a, a, you know, a former part of Division. I definitely agree with that. We're on to Chapter 6, uh, The Vanquishers. 
The Doctor gets tortured by the memories like in the episode, but Dan shows up on the ship from the tunnel and rescues her, distracting the, the ravages just long enough. Begs our way using the device the Doctor left her to escape the passenger, leaving it in inert, and she finds herself onto the uh, Division ship. Uh, Yaz and Jericho work with Kate in Resistance to hold back the Sontarans back on Earth. Uh, I'm removing some of the plot elements from the TV episodes, like the Sontarans capturing psychic people and holding them at the Dark Energy Camera Observatory in Chile to calculate what the next flux attack is, because I feel like it doesn't really matter. It was there to give Jericho and Claire something to do, and I've got different plans for those two now. Okay. Uh, removing that thread means there's more time for the other arcs, and comes with a pleasant bonus of removing that scene with a chocolate-obsessed Santaran getting easily bribed with say, his whole race. That was too silly, and I liked how the series made the Santarans feel like a threat again, so this kind of scene just felt like a uh, step backwards into making them look like jokes. I'm also removing the idea of the Doctor being split into three time copies. Uh, I was tempted to keep this idea because I found it a fun concept. I feel like uh, if done well, it could be done across a whole season. But in the end, I felt even with my alterations, we still have plenty of characters who, have, who should have time to shine for themselves without two more Doctors showing up to take command. Let's say in an alternative alternative taken flux, this idea would be explored more. But to keep things simple, I'm going to cut the idea here. Uh, the finale should be a time to show what the companions are, uh, what they're made of. You know, They should take charge of their own subplots, leaving to Kate, Yaz, and Jericho to take on the Satans. Uh, plus the Grand Serpent, uh, and the Doctor and Dan fight for Claire's soul, with Carvinist and Bell flittering between both sides of the story, using the Dimension Tunnels and the Quantum Bridge Swarm was using, uh, respectively, you know, deal with the more cosmic side of things with the Santarans. Yaz should be given a, a bigger presence in the story as she takes charge of resistance, putting her police training and experiences of the Doctor to good use to outsmart the Santarans alongside Kate. This should be a big culmination of her character growth. She, you know, she's no longer the comedian or the Doctor's lackey, over the years traveling with Doctor and, you know, just Dan and Jericho, she's grown so much more confident in herself, able to stick out and be a defender of Earth in her own right. So I feel like having her alongside Kate, you know, taking charge will be a good way to demonstrate this. But in particular, I want to give Dan a big hero moment, as he sees his chance being within the division ship to free the Lupari from the curse Tector and had put him on, as he destroys the machine that was linking the Lupari to the life force of humanity, giving them the choice now to stay or to go. You know, either stay to defend the Earth or go save themselves. Uh, ultimately, Carvinister will sacrifice his life to save Dan after they've built up a genuine friendship and the majority of Lupari will choose to defend Earth of their own choice to avenge uh, Carvinister. Dan will be instrumental in getting a subconscious uh, Diane personality within Azure to resurface just long enough for the Doctor to reconfigure her own comedian arc modulator, the one of the pre-Hartnell memories, and use that to draw in the Azure personality, trapping it within and restoring Diane to normal. And ridding Swarm of the counterpart that he needs to unleash the full power of time. The Doctor works with Ood to shut down production of more antimatter-fueled flux energy and reconfigure the Division ship's energy resources so it's now integrated into the main universe and is used to replicate old gravitational center of the universe before the flux wave. They can't restore what damage was done in the first flux attack, but they can ensure the rest of the universe is no longer thrown in chaos because of it. Uh, the gravitational anchor now restoring a proper sense of time to the universe and stopping the planets and stars from drifting. So that's my way of addressing the, the plot hole, the TV episode mm -hmm. of Left, where we're like, what happened to the universe at the end? So, <laughs> so I, I like the idea that there are consequences to the flux, but this way there's no you know, aftermath of it. For the Doctor, I want, to get, I want to give a moment where the portal of the other universe is so close, you know, it's being close forever. She's contemplating jumping in to find the two people, but it's like, 
maybe I came from that universe, but this one is my home. I'm always going to defend it. You know, it's always my choice, my flaws, my triumphs. I'm not giving any of that to you, mother. You're not, uh, you know, I don't owe you my successes. Uh, the Doctor, Dan and Bell escape back to Earth. The Doctor only having a quick reunion with Yaz and Kate before rushing back into the TARDIS to catch up to Swarm. Uh, I'm keeping the idea of the Suntans leading the Cybermen and Daleks into a trap with the Flux. I like that we've got to see the Suntans outsmart the two, you know, big threats for once. Because, uh, you know, in the past, it's usually the Cybermen and the Daleks who are the big bads. So having the Suntans be the big bads, you know, for the first time in, in ages, I like that direction. Uh, and I want the team of Bell and Jericho working with the surviving Upari uh, to manipulate their shields to leave the Suntans trapped on the outside, leaving them to the Flux. Uh, however, Jericho is trapped in the process, so similar to the TV episode. To the outsiders, uh, to his friends, it looks like Jericho died in this ship's explosion. But in reality, he's been saved, if you can call it that. An angel has been living within his eyes for all these years and activated to give Jericho a deal. It will save his life. In return, Jericho will become an agent for the angels to prepare for the arrival. The last we see of him is he's struggling to decide. So for those who don't know, this will be my small nod to the finale of the Doctor Who spinoff from a few years ago that everyone has forgotten about, Class. That show ended on such a huge cliffhanger with unresolved threads. Uh, one of the most intriguing ones was the surprise reveal of the Weeping Angels, that they were the, the true threats behind uh, the recurring bad guys in the show, The Board. You know, it reveals The Board were preparing the arrival of some kind of Weeping Angel prophecy known only as The Arrival. The plans for Season 2 were to go into history of the Weeping Angels, showed a home planet and a civil war between them, but the show was canned after just one season. So I thought it would be neat if this season was reworked to include elements and not to the scrapped angel plans, and also to give Jericho a more uh, ambiguous ending, you know, leaving the door open for an interesting return in the future. So I'm shaking things up in a TV episode here, Carvinista dies, Jericho survives, but it's left wondering, would be uh, an angel of angels be wor a worse fate than death? With Dan back on Earth to see the final Suntaran squad, uh, led by the fleet commander Stenk, he uses Carvinista's battle axe to fend them off from his friends before he comes up with a great idea. Uh, Stenk would be having his typical Suntaran war, war monologue, stuff like, it's going to take a lot more than that to kill us, as Dan takes out of his pocket his whole house, still shrunk. He chucks it at the Suntarans, and with the axe, fires a molecular blast at it. As the tiny house is falling towards the Suntarans, the blast reverses the effect, and it's suddenly back to normal house size. Uh, as he watches the house falling towards him and the rest of the squad, Stenk is like, oh yeah, I'll do it. Good game. And before being utterly smashed to a pulp by a house, shattered upon impact. Yaz is like, oh my god, Dan, that was incredible. And Dan being like, Dan is like, oh, everything I own was in there. Oh, I did not think this through. <laughs> so, uh, Chekhov's house. Ever since <laughs> the first episode of Flux, when I saw the shrunk house, I was like, Oh my god, it'd be so amazing if they kept the house this whole time and they, they used it as this plot element to the finale. It didn't happen. But here it is. Here's Chekhov's house, because I feel like Doctor Who is the only kind of show that could pull that off. <laughs> uh, I want to give Kate Stewart and the Grand Serpent a proper showdown fight, with Kate only getting the upper hand through Bell's revival. Uh, they're the two characters with the most personal beef with Serpent, so they should totally team up. The show did have the same with Kate and Vinda, but it was done quite quickly. You know, uh, Grand Serpent was defeated so easily, it was, once again, an anticlimactic ending to the villain. So here it would be a much more, you know, scrappy kind of fight, you know, have two badass ladies punching, you know, Grand Serpent in the face. I think that would be fun. Grand Serpent would get badly hurt and is forced to escape for dimensional door at random, leaving him trapped on the ring of asteroids. So, like this TV story, this would leave his fate, you know, more open-ended. 
as I said before, I think he has potential to become a really good uh, villain. So that's something I want to keep keep with. While the flux stream sent Earth to slow down and absorbed by the Dalek, Cybermen and Tarn fleets with the rest of Wave blocked by Lupai's shield, another stream that was targeted by Swarm is heading towards the planet Time to destroy the temple in a rushed attempt to unleash the forces of time. The Doctor is pushing the corrupted TARDIS to its limits to blaze for the universe, and in keeping with the episode did because I thought it was a clever conclusion, I still have the Doctor use the Ravage's own passenger forms against them, so only a nerd one they'll be be escape from into the path of Swarm and the Flux, uh, absorbing them all inside it. Um, I'd add some, you know, excuse for how the other uh, prisoners inside escaped or something like that. Uh, so yeah, throw inside the path of the Flux, absorb, uh, absorbing Swarm, you know, trapping it within. The TARDIS crashes into the temple, and the Doctor has a vision of time in her own form talking to her. Uh, I want to keep this vague if this is actually real, like if, if time is, a, is an actual entity, or something the Doctor's just hallucinating after everything. Uh, with these changes to Azure and Swarm's fate, I hope to avoid how anticlimactic their endings felt in the actual episodes by having time itself destroy them, uh, despite the fact they all they did was try to unleash it. Like, you know, that that's something that happens a lot in, you know, in kind of villain stories, they're like, ah, my henchmen, you have failed. You you came so close to, help, to helping me, but you fell. I'm going to kill you now. It's like, why? If you keep them alive, they can probably succeed the next time. So this way, I hope to give the Doctor more control in the story by making her actually responsible for their defeats. Back on Earth, Joseph Williamson is finally returned as, to his home in his proper time. Fear of his burdens, but where he will be seen as a madman to the outside world. Uh, in the real world, Joseph Williamson, uh, he mourned his wife's death for a long time, so that's something I'd add on here. He's home, but he doesn't really have anyone to come home to. Uh, Belle decides to stay on Earth for a while with Kate's supervision as Kate tries to rebuild the unit and a monument for Carvinista is made. I give the final scene between Diane and Dan a bit more weight between them. I didn't like how it was handled in the episode, where she's angry at Dan for not showing up to the date and stopping her kidnapping. Despite the fact he himself was kidnapped at the exact same time, it just felt kind of petty. But now with the new context of Dan's story, she decides she really needs time to figure out exactly who she is before she can be with Dan. And Dan? Well, poor Dan is now homeless after sacrificing his house. And he's a bit worried becoming a local resistance hero. So when he's off the travel doctor, it's a no-brainer. Especially now he's content that even at his age and everything he's gone through, he knows he can still help people and go beyond than he even expected. As he learned from Carvinista, old dogs can still surprise you. Uh, I keep the ending of the episode basically the same. I really like the scene between Yaz and the Doctor. Uh, you know, as the Doctor finally apologizes and opens up to Yaz, I'd expand upon that a bit if I could. In particular, I'd have a moment where the Doctor's like, Tech Turn spoke a lot of lies. The biggest was about you, Yaz. You're not a comedian. Not to me. To me, you're a star. Now, I'm not a Phasmin person myself, you know, that hugely popular ship uh <laughs> but i know it's very big to some people and since the flux serial as has become an in-universe confirmed thing so i'm gonna give the people what they want you know more cutesy lines like that to build up to reveal eve's dark scave uh plus throughout the series we see yaz wearing star designs on all her clothes so that comparison just seemed like a, a no-brainer really uh i also really liked that the doctor the talus look after the communion arc with timeless memories that was a great choice to show the Doctor resisting the temptation and be content with her own life and memories. It also shows just how much the Doctor loves the TARDIS and, you know, the fandom loves that kind of stuff. So I, I like that scene. Uh, I would add one small epilogue, though, just for my own personal self-indulgence. I'd have the Doctor, after being requested to by Yaz and Dan, pick up the bees Jericho left behind in the 60s, and she takes them to an ideal planet to release the bees. Uh, the Doctor talks about how a lot was taken out of flux, 
but life always wins, and it's time to put her title into good use to look after the survivors. I'd end the series with a shot of the Doctor, Daz, and Yaz walking into the sunset to help uh, some refugee aliens. And there we go. Roll credits. That's a very interesting, much more tight uh, rewrite of Flux. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could have been so much more. It had a lot of... You definitely went in a different direction than I would have. Mm -hmm. uh, But that is not saying anything bad, because your take was quite interesting. I like tying everything to the Division, because... Be honest, I thought that's what it should have been in the first yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. I, I like Jericho uh, sticking around. I don't really have many points of complaints or anything. I think this is a really solid rewrite. The only thing that I think I would like personally uh, would have preferred is uh, the the timeless child thing is a thing that I'm not really into all that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I don't, I don't like chosen. I don't like the chosen one narrative for the Doctor, especially. What I would be interested in doing is, or is keeping with Tecteun being a liar and being someone who's manipulative and a complete ass. Is that the entire timeless children idea was made up as a way for her to manipulate the Doctor into doing what she wanted? That that is good. That, but yeah, I'm not. I'm kind of in the middle of the Timeless Children debate. I I also don't like the whole Chosen One aspect. I really dislike, you know, having a million off-screen incarnations before Hartnell. That feels disrespectful to his legacy. I think the idea of this child from the universe that the Time Wars captured to extract regeneration energy from, you know, abusing that child and all that, I think that's a great concept. Just making it a doctor was the moment where, you know, the, the screening yeah. was like, oh. Uh, you know, we all yeah. went to the pub afterwards and moaned about it. It, so, it was the obvious choice, yeah. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of fans online talk about their takes on it. Someone was talking like how the Doctor would feel this guilt after knowing, you know, this she's alive. You know, she has this amazing power of essentially immortality because it was stolen from this, you know, tortured uh, a lonely child. That could have added some real complexity to it. Mm-hmm. But no, we got chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and it's recently come out. Chris Chimnall talked about how it was inspired by his own life, like how he was adopted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some people talk about, you know, the more defenders of timeless children talk about how it's connected to like uh, a refugee kind of metaphor. And that's, you know, adoption and refugee, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I don't fully connect with it personally. I don't fully yeah. see that comparison, but there is something there. I think. And we've talked about this in chat before, but to me, the Doctor should always be a cookie scientist, and the moment you start drifting away from that, there's issues. Yeah. Um, and the Cartmel Master Plan, um, look it up if people don't know, but Josh <laughs> certainly knows an idea. I'm a big fan, yeah. I met him twice, this guy. It's an interesting take, and I think if it would have been fulfilled, it would have been quite interesting. Uh, but I like that his decision with it was that essentially the Doctor was just didn't want that legacy anymore, so left yeah. it behind. I think that makes it far more interesting than, oh, you have a secret special destiny you didn't know about. Yeah. And it's just like, no, what if the Doctor was important and decided, nah, I just want to gallivant around the galaxy. <laughs> um, and to me, that makes a more interesting character, personally. But, you know, I, I, I'm also one that prefers kooky scientist uh you know uh uh, doctor compared to usual like uh david tennant's run on the doctor got really obnoxious with the doctor being special and awesome yeah 
all that stuff. And I'm like, I, I, I love the Capaldi era of just, he's a mad teacher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who just wants to gallivant and figure out mysteries. That is, that's the doctor to me. And I think that's what we should be getting more of. Personally. Yeah. Great. So. Yeah, like, you know, the Doctor was a loser on Gallifrey, you know, there, yep. there was someone who failed all the classes and stuff, yes. and, you know, they ran away and stuff. Um, that's the Doctor to me, that, you know, William Hunt, you know, the first Doctor's arc was, he he was an asshole, you know, he disliked, the they disliked the Time Lords, but they still had that kind of obnoxious, higher privilege, you know, feeling to them. It was only mm -hmm. through time with Barth and Ian, uh, where they're like, hey, you kidnapped us. You're an asshole. Get us out of this mess. You know, help these people because we keep reviving at these, you know, at these situations. It's through that that uh, the Doctor evolves. You know, they become what they aspire to be, uh, someone who helps people. And, you know, that's, I love that arc. It's beautiful. But no, I guess they were the Doctor before they were the Doctor. Obviously, this leaves a lot to, like, be picked up on if, hypothetically, you were in a Doctor Who thing. Mm -hmm. Inevitably in the show. We are most likely going to cover Doctor Who. Do you think you'll pick up on anything that you did here? Could be interesting to do a follow-up on uh, Jericho, Agent of Angels. You know, that sounds like <laughs> a comic series waiting to happen. Yeah. Again, big big finish. Give me a give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like you have a very interesting concept here of you know reshaping flux to something more consistent. There's a lot of open threads to be picked up if you ever hypothetically were in a Doctor Who thing or, or continuing this as an alternate universe fan fiction style yeah. thing. I'm interested to see where you would go, especially with the Grand Serpent. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh tech Taeun, well, we we talked about her but i think that uh, the the uh manipulative mom thing could be a, very interesting to have her like as a specter keep showing up uh in the doctor's life fucking things over you know yeah. sort of like sort of like how your the legacy of your parents continue to uh overshadow you even after the long dead you yeah. know um but no that's all i have to really say on the flux i think this was a great rewrite Thank you. Uh, and it's much neater than uh, the ending of the real one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. Now we transition to the book of Boba Fett, which uh, I am fixing. Uh, I want to preface everything that is about to come with not only did we set rules for ourselves as we laid out at the beginning of the episode, but ultimately this show is very different from uh, what I want. What I, uh, you know, I... I for instance, I wouldn't have said it on Tatooine, for instance, and stuff like that. So my rewrite, um, while it's trying to make the book of Boba Fett better, ultimately what I would do if handed Star Wars, or even just handed Boba Fett as a singular character, mm -hmm. would be entirely different than this rewrite of the pre-existing show. Um, we are covering Star Wars in a few episodes' time, so you'll see something along those lines there, but it'll be different than this uh quite a lot uh so ultimately i would have scrapped this entire show if given the chance and just rewrite uh but i am working within the guidelines yeah we can't make things too easy for ourselves can we <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know the the book of boba fett uh was uh really exciting to me based on the trailers and the stinger we got at the end of the mandalorian season two with boba killing bib fortuna and taking over jabba's palace uh, however, the fi final product left me wanting, especially considering the title character and conflict are absent for two full episodes mm -hmm. out of a seven-episode season. Yeah, it's quite a common complaint that the show essentially became Mandalorian season three towards the end. Mm -hmm. It got totally hijacked. I was expecting a Godfather in a space-type show, 
And I mm. still think that would be awesome. The growing on the world of the Star Wars universe is something that the movies and so far the TV shows have yet to really explore, but the expanded universe back in the day, now known as the Legends timeline, uh, did for many years explore the criminal underworld, and it's one of my favorite aspects of the Star Wars universe. As I said, my uh, my first inclination was to rewrite the entire series completely, but in addition to the rules laid out, uh, as I analyzed the existing show, I realized there were some interesting thematic stuff and ideas that are just kind of thrown in there, but not really explored. And so my idea is to rewrite is to keep the skeleton, most of the plot beats, most of stuff from the original, but add in some of that thematic stuff that the, that uh, they only lightly touched upon that I think should be explored more. And this is to get a Boba Fett to go down a, a character arc that would lead to the God the Father in space in a hypothetical second season. So this is really the setup to that, to, to more concrete of my initial idea. Um, as such, outside of the, of the uh, few episodes, such as uh, episodes 5 and 6, which are getting full uh, back-to-front rewrites, most of the episodes will have minor changes, and as such, the synopses won't be of the episodes as a whole, but rather of the how the changes fit in with the current existing product. Brilliant, yeah. You gave me some of your ideas, like, months ago, just a few bare-bones ones, you know, stuff like uh, Godfather in Space. And, you know, those are all, all the concepts you gave are so simple, but they're so brilliant. Like, and you just question how the show missed out on this. Mm-hmm. I've been really looking forward to your, uh, your full take on it all, how to do uh, <laughs> an, ep- an actual episode four and five that are actually about Book of Boba Fett without yeah. being hijacked by a certain other mask-face-wearing character. Mm-hmm. The biggest overall change that I want thematically that will should run through all seven episodes is I want to convey through the rewrite, that uh, a question Boba should be asking of himself. Am I a clone of my father, through and through, or can I be something different, someone else? Because, you know, Boba Fett, his history in the franchise is complicated. You know, he his first appearance is a holiday special, and, like, uh, and then, uh, you know, he only has a few lines, and, uh, and obviously he wasn't a clone initially, and then the prequel retcon of the clone idea I actually thought was very clever. And a lot of the Expanded Universe stuff pretty much treats him as your classic cowboy in space. And by tacking on the Mandalorian stuff, by tacking on the clone of Jingo concept, you have the makings of an interesting character arc that goes nowhere because we're not interested in exploring the character because Star Wars is, is, is stuck in a loop of nostalgia where all it wants to be is the, the original movies. Uh, as such, we can't deviate from that, you know, so Boba always has to wear his armor and look exactly the way he looked. Uh, when he first showed up in Holiday Specials like Empire Strikes Back, he can't be different because Star Wars just needs to regurgitate the same stuff over and over yep. again. So, this is my attempt to fix that, make Boba an actual character who changes and grows, and also do that with for poor fitting Strand, who's just mm. sort of sitting there in the show. So, I'm going episode by episode. Unlike you, I don't have, like, massive changes to characters that will be present in the episodes, and I will call them out when I get there. Um, so the original title for episode one is Stranger in a Strange Land. We are keeping that title. No change. Um, we don't see Boba escape the Sarlacc in this. Uh, instead he is already out and missing his armor. Uh, he has brief flashes of getting out, 
uh, but he is not quite sure how. Uh, the Rodian that the Tuscans had is now replaced by a young Drash, who was the uh, young girl who led the, the, the mod gang, uh, introduced later, and uh, played by the wonderful actress Sophie uh, Thatcher, who was given nothing to do in this series. And I want to give her something to do because she is awesome. Go watch Prospect. It's an amazing movie. Seriously. And the Sand Creature is replaced uh, by the Nitko Biker Gang. Attacking the Ketuscan. Mos Espa is divided into three parts as a result of Drava's crumbling empire, as established later in the series, but not really set up really well in the beginning. Uh, the idea was that Bib Fortuna was an idiot, uh, as he was in Return of the Jedi, and when Jabba was killed, Bib Fortuna basically took over, and everybody saw him as a way, so, sort of a linchpin to do whatever they wanted. So a bunch of Jabba's empire split apart, gained independence. Um, and so what's left of Jabba's empire is very little, and those that still recognize the original contracts with uh, Jabba aren't as concerned. And now that Boba has killed Bib, uh, it's now just essentially Jabba's empire that has just splintered off. It's a power vacuum, but they each have their own defined territory, the three different factions. And this is part of the, the ongoing conflict, is where do uh, Jabba's contracts end? Where uh, is the independence within the criminal empires? How is Boba going to control them, etc.? So within the actual summary of the episode, we see flashes of people pulling out Boba from the Sarlacc. Two separate people. If we see an argument, we don't know who these people are. Uh, and Boba f fades in and out of consciousness. And uh, then the next time he regains consciousness, the, the Jawas are stealing his armor, taking it off and stealing it to tie in with Mandalorian. Uh, all the while, Boba fades in and out of consciousness. He is picked up by the Tuscans, and the flashback continues as in original, pretty much until the very end. Uh, the Rodian being drashed this time, Boba Drash and the Tuscan boy uh, go to uh, look for the, 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 the little water things, um, and they're attacked by Nitko Biker Gang, um, which we saw them noticing but then just kind of disappeared and then till they're a plot point in later and it's just kind mm. of all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so instead of the sand creature coming out of nowhere, they attack them. Uh, Drash uh, suffers some injuries, but um, decides uh, after Boba basically dispatches some of the Nikos, they leave and Drash leaves with them, hoping to basically smuggle her way into the gang and hoping that uh, she doesn't have to go back into Tuscan slavery. Oh, that's good. That's a good setup. It's better than that, um, that other bloke that was there that just got killed off after trying to betray him. Yeah, the Rodian. Yeah. Um, then, uh, because uh, uh, Boba protected the child, uh, when they get to the uh, to the Tuscans, uh, Tuscan tribe again, he's uh, she's shown respect, etc. Flashback continues as was in original. Um, in the present day, Sefli mostly remains the same. The scene with Garza Flip uh, establishes that she is one of the few people who still keeps to her original contract with Jabba, which has now been inherited by Boba. Uh, with Jabba gone, uh, you know, uh, Bib Fortuna basically fucked everything up because he's an idiot. <laughs> um, and uh, now Jabba's empire has basically crumbled and shattered into a million pieces. And if someone wants to wish to become the new Jabba, they're going to have to start gluing those pieces back together. 
um, and a small timer's uh, risking opportunity to gain uh, a little power, um, and this is causing more gangs to pop up, and why Mos Espa is divided upon three different lines, the Aqualish, the Clintonians, and the Trandoshans, as well as small street gangs like the Mods. Uh, now that... Uh, Basically, Boba now has to figure out a way to unite everyone to reestablish the uh, criminal enterprise. Um, and that's where we leave off. It's, you know, it, pretty much the rest of episode one happens as is in original. Episode two, The Tribes of Tatooine. Uh, same title, it's kept. So the overall changes is uh, this episode is mostly the same. Large swaths of this is just straight from the original. Uh, Drash is present in the bar when uh, Boba goes to get the speeder bikes, uh, having joined the gang. Uh, if you remember, the Nitkos were kind of racist and like hating on humans. The idea mm. is that because of the injuries she sustained in the flashback sequence in episode one, basically she's got cybernetic implants. Uh, because, you know, she'll go on the later form the mod, the mod street gang. Yeah. Um, and so the Nikkos no longer see her as human because she is cybernetically enhanced. So she is part of this biker gang. Um, and Black Chrysanthemum is removed entirely. We don't, he's not here anymore. Um, the twin huts, uh, uh, Jabba's cousins are still here, but they are never shown. Uh, not until the end of the season. Uh, they are Good. operating. They are operating through Mayor Makshes of Mosespa, uh, who was a puppet mayor installed by Jabba. Uh, they until they intend to steal their cousin's throne quietly behind the scenes until the specter of their cousin's, uh, you know, reputation becomes forgotten to time. And uh, also, Cad Bane is introduced in this episode. Good. I was gonna. I was wondering if you'd uh, pop it quicker because yeah. You know, the common complaint about the show is Cad Bane should have been much more a bigger focus. Yep. Uh, so the overall summary, like I said, flash, uh, flashbacks with Tuscan training with Boba is kept the same. The the bar fight to get the speeders mostly the same. Uh, the Nikos, most of them are killed by Boba. Some are left alive. Some stragglers, including Drash, when when he goes to do the killing blow against Drash, he gets flashes of himself. Uh, with his dad, uh, specifically that that flash that we keep seeing that never comes up again about him watching his dad leave on Camino. Yeah, that went nowhere. And so he basically decides, I'm going to let her be. Um, and so he leaves her. Uh, the heist on the train remains exactly the same. Same with the vision quest, the gaffy stick, all that jazz. Nice. All, all the same. No, no changes necessarily. Good. That's that's my favorite thing from the series, the vision quests. Ooh. Because you know it's just uh, dialogue less. You know, all the stories presented to you without much need for dialogue. You know, and I love it when Star Wars gets more mythical with it. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, it, I, I guess it boils down to Boba Fett essentially gets high off uh, whatever that lizard thing was, but it's still cool. You know, just that flashing vision of of water on the on, on the sand planet, uh, him him seeing his father. It's just it's evocative mm. stuff, and it does. It, it's hinting towards an inner psyche, and I was just like waiting. Okay, let's. I'm keen to see how this develops, and mm. it never really did until like the yeah. last possible minute. <laughs> yeah, to 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 me, that vision quest is all about him realizing that he has basically fallen fallen in his dad's footsteps this entire mm. time, and hasn't given a chance for him to be someone else, and because he's a clone. That adds additional layers there. Yeah. Um, and to me, the idea of the Tuscan tribe was him realizing, oh, 
Jango was a Mandalorian who left the Code of you know, left Mandalore, became a bounty hunter, and whatnot. So him realizing he needs to form his own clan as a Mandalorian, you know, an inheritor of the title. You know, he doesn't. He's not in a, you know, in in the Mandalorian culture. He's mm. not really considered a Mandalorian, as we saw in, in season two, uh, when he encountered Katie Sackhoff's character, Bo-Katan. Yeah, and uh, so like. He's got this, he's divided between following his dad, becoming his own person. Is he Mandalorian? Is he not? And so my idea is he wants he wants to find his own family, make his own clan of Mandalorians uh, to sort of figure out who he is outside of his dad, but also mm-hmm. still learning from his dad in many ways. Yeah, that's brilliant stuff. Is it all right if I, if I add to it? Yeah, go add ahead. Add to that kind of uh, thematic idea. So this is a recent observation I saw uh, on the internet recently. It's like it's great stuff. It's like it's it's like what you're saying. Um, it it's once again like something so simple, but never really clicks in the head until someone else brings it up. It's like, oh, how do I not see this? Disney recently changed the name, but we all know that the original Boba Fett ship was called Slave One. And if you think about it, that makes so much sense because you know that's what Boba Fett is. He is the first slave. That's what clones are. They were your easy to manufacture and dispose army for the Jedi, for, you know, the Republic. And he is, he is the first slave. So there's some, as you're saying, this is about Boba Fett stepping out of his father's shadow. This is a slave breaking his, finally breaking his shackles. Mm-hmm. And also on that entire Slave One thing, they didn't rename Slave One. They just avoided saying its name. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. In expanded universe canon, uh, and now canon canon, the Slave One is a fire spray gunship. Uh, it's a fi- it's a fire spray class. So the entirety of the Book of Boba Fett, instead of saying Slave One, he just says the class name of the ship. It's sort of like calling the, I, I don't know, the, the Enterprise, the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because that's the class name. It's so weird. Like, I, I honestly don't get the entire thing. I Whatever they want to do, I don't really care. It I, Slave 1 does come up in this, and I do call it Slave 1, because to I me, see. that's always been its name. I can't think of a name other than that, because yeah. I grew up, I grew up on the, 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 the Expanded Universe books. So, like that—that that, to me, that's that's his ship in the story, you know. Like you know, as we as we know, he didn't really have a lot of stuff going on in the original trilogy. This is like yep. <laughs> his most iconic thing outside of his helmet. So yep. <laughs> just keep it intact, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, last scene of the flashback sequences in this episode is the Pikes putting out a call for muscle uh, after the raid on their train, their spice train, mm-hmm. uh, and one Cad Bane answers the call. Nice. Um, present day stuff remains pretty much the same up until the appearance of the twins. Instead of the twins confronting Boba outside of Garza Flip's cantina, it is the Trandoshan gang. Uh, scene plays out roughly the same with, uh, Finnick and Boba ignoring their threats and saying, you know, I'm the new Daimyo, deal with it. <laughs> um, now, uh... Episode three is where we where major rewrites start happening, but it's not as massive as episodes five and six, obviously. Um, the original title, Streets of Mos Espa, kept the same. The the Tuscan tribe do not die this episode. Huh? Um, uh, we in, we increase flashback time and more of the tribe. Uh, in Boba's time there, Boba does not negotiate with the Pikes in the past for on behalf of the Tuscans in this episode. Uh, Chrysanthemum, twins, etc., all gone. Uh, Finnick gets a backstory. 
the the remaining two gangs, the Aqualish and the Clintonians, are clashing as a result of the uh, the Water Baron, Lorthop Peel's, you know, hijacked prices. Um, that's like a small subplot in that episode. Uh, and a older Drash, uh, who's now in charge of the street gang, the Mods, uh, it, you know, meets Boba, the new daimyo of Mos Espa. Uh, and the, um, the Majordomo of Mokshase is present, but he is not chased in that really weird slow speeder chase, uh, that had really bad CGI in it. Yeah. I know people made a big deal out of the multicolored speeders, I, I really don't give a shit. Yeah, same. Uh, <laughs> like it, like Star Wars is weird. It's it's it, it, it's a love letter to Flash Gordon. Deal with it. It can get weird. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, it has it has personality if you think about it. Yeah, and the the it, what bothered me was the slow pace of that chase. Yeah. Uh, and the really bad CG. The uh overall summary of the episode, uh, you know, flashback stuff, uh, you know, includes more training for Boba. Uh, bonding with the tribe, specifically with Kit he saved in the first episode. Uh, he feels like he is home, that his life as a clone of his father is fading away. Present day stuff, a local robber baron type, Lortha Peel, is hoarding water and overcharging for small samples, as in the original. Um, everyone in Mosospa is on edge, the three major clans are riling each other up, especially the Aqualish and Clatoonians. Uh, meanwhile, a simple street rat gang known as the Mods, ran by Drash, is uh, finding itself in the middle of this mess. At, at first, Boba is focused on the larger picture and isn't concerned about Lorth Appeal. However, Finnick decides to go off on her own uh, and take matters in her own hands. Uh, you see, when she was young, she was on a planet that was stripped by filthy businessmen and corrupt politicians, uh, uh, and like Lor uh, Lor uh, Lortha, who's like basically a robber baron for water, and most of her family died from starvation due to famine. Uh, so uh, she has a personal beef with someone like Lortha. Uh, when uh, Boba realizes that his second-in-command is throwing caution to the wind, he gets involved, uh, which is when he comes face to face with Drash. Um, uh, you know, emotions are high for both Finnick, Boba, and Drash as they overcome their own personal issues. You know, Boba and Drash having met previously during the Tuscan stuff, but also, you know, both children who were abandoned by their parents, uh, and how they reflect on each other, and Finnick also dealing with the fact that, you know, even though Lortha isn't personally responsible, people like him was the reason she was abandoned and left to rot, uh, and her family passed away. So ultimately, Lortha is killed by Fennec, water supply is put in the hands of the mods, um, and basically they're used as a gopher, a go-between, between, uh, Boba and the rest of the gangs, and the gang war is averted by Boba offering, uh, through the mods as third party, uh, water supply in a in um in, in return for small tributes uh from the Aqualish, the Clatoonians, and the Trandoshans. Um. Uh. Meanwhile, Mokshays, the Pikes, and by proxy the Twins, even though we don't know that they're involved yet, uh, begin amassing for a war for Mos Aspa, realizing that Boba is beginning to get everyone in Mos Aspa to work together, uh, and to prop himself up. Uh. So episode four, original title: The Gathering Storm. That is kept. Uh, the, uh, the third episode negotiation with the Pikes and the death of the Tuscan tribe is moved here to this episode. 
um and the um and the the slave one thing with uh with Fennec is is moved it's not in this episode um and uh the rancor and trainer are given a gift to, uh, as a gift to boba uh but it's not from the twins well technically it is but it's on behalf of the mayor mark shays so the flashback and negotiation pretty much happens exactly as it was in the original episode three. We intercut this scene with Cad Bane, along with a small tinge of Pike uh, enforcers slaughtering the Tuscan tribe. Um, and so you know Boa is negotiated with the, the Pikes. At the same time, they're being slaughtered. It's very similar to the way the original show did it, but we actually show it. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, Cad Bane. Uh, you know, heard about the Nitko of uh, biker gang stuff, so uh, paints the symbol of them on the tribe hut to basically frame the Nitko deal for getting um revenge on what Boba did to them in the bar. Yeah. Um, and so Boba returns to find his tribe destroyed. He's distraught. He blames the bikers, buries his friends, and vows revenge. In the present day, the major domo of Makshay's gifts Boba with the Rancor and the trainer. Uh, we, the audience, know this is a ploy by the mayor who is working with mysterious benefactors that is unknown at this point, but uh, in the context of this is the twins. Uh, the trainer is a spy, um, mm -hmm. and his suggestive dialogue to the Rancor, uh, if you remember in the episode, we're like, don't worry, he'll be back. Um, is supposed to be insidious in my taste. Good, because that's what I was thinking. That I, I was thinking, is this a trick? It turned out not to be. Uh, and yeah. it's a shame because you know you got freaking Danny Trejo there. I love that guy. <laughs> you got, you got him in Star Wars, and he's that's just for well, the one episode. Do yep. on you, sir. Give him, give him something to do. Mm -hmm. uh, Boba attempts to get the three major gangs of Mos Espa to unite against the Pike's presence. This is pretty much exactly the same as the original. However, while the meeting is going on, Finnick and Drash are mysteriously not at the table. Uh, they go off and plant evidence to turn the Trandoshans against the Pikes. They killed the pilot of their transport, and, uh, and there's a brief poisoning thing that is quickly adverted so that the Trandoshan person isn't killed, uh, but the drink is established to have been a spice-laden drink from the Pikes. Well, with this, the Trandoshans are enraged. They believe the Pikes are behind all of this. They sign up to help Boba. The Aqualish and the Clatoonians uh do their neutral thing now here's where we get to severe rewrites because episode five is not a boba fett episode it's a mandalorian yep. episode the original title is called return of the mandalorian <laughs> but the the new title is familial bonds good so yeah uh, uh overall changes the uh the this entire episode is scrapped in favor of new stuff literally nothing from the original will be here at all perfect good i'm excited to see this yeah the slave one plot from the original episode four is transplanted here mm -hmm. um uh finnick is revealed to be one of the people that saved boba from the sarlacc um and uh Drash and Boba Bond, Major Domo and the Mukshays begin to clash and there are gang tensions on the rise. Those are the overall changes, so here's the summary. The flashback material from the original episode four is moved here with only a few changes. When Boba stumbles upon Finnick in the aftermath of the Mandalorian season one when she is shot, uh he has a strange feeling that he has met her before. 
The cybernetic stuff uh, saving her life continues as normal, and the Jabba palace heist for a slave one is kept, minus that really weird scene where he chokes out a rabbit robot and says, do you know who I am? Thank you, I agree, that was just so pointless. Uh, I don't understand the point of that scene, that is gone. Good. Um, uh, everything continues as normal until they get Slave 1. Uh, and when Boba has that conversation with Finnick about starting his own family, his own clan, uh, and his own criminal enterprise, two things are revealed. Uh, the planet Finnick was on, uh, that was having a famine thanks to filthy businessmen and corrupt politicians, was only saved from this situation when a certain bounty hunter in full Mandalorian armor by the name of Boba Fett was contracted to kill uh, the tyrant of the planet. Oh, neat. Yeah, uh, and so she remembers as a kid seeing him in his full Mandalorian gear uh, and has forever wanted to find him to thank him, which is why she became an assassin and joined the criminal underworld was to get to Boba and uh, in hopes of returning the favor. But when she finally stumbled upon him, he was in the Sarlacc pit after the events of episode six. Uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, so situations got complicated. She had to leave quickly after an argument with the person that was helping her. Uh, the other person will never be revealed. However, if in a hypothetical season two, it would be the expanded universe now Legends character Dengar, who was the original savior of Boba from the Sarlacc in the expanded universe novels. Um, and this plot thread would be picked up on season two um, if I could make that season two. Nice one. You know, it's it's kind of breaking the rule of adding additional character, but oh, I, I'll, I'll I'll let it be. That's yeah. Fine with me. <laughs> yeah, because like it's not. I don't want him to be revealed in this. I want it to be a, a, a mystery of who was Fennec working with, and mm -hmm. that to be revealed later. Um, and I also think it's just nice for expanded universe things to come back. So you know. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very good setup. Like, I really like how she has an actual backstory now yeah. uh yeah an actual character dynamics going on here i love mingna win i think she's an amazing yeah, actress amazing. and she's she's a lot of fun and her dedication to the craft of still doing her own stunts even at you know her age where she's pushing 60 is amazing really she, she's that old yeah, she's in her 50s, man. Gosh, wow. Bravo. <laughs> yeah, so, like, um, I think that is amazing on her behalf, but Fennec is, has no character. She is there mm. to crack wise, and, and that's it. She's there for Ming-Na Wen to cool, pull off cool martial arts, and that's really it. Yeah, that's kind of the, the Disney problem now in all their projects. It's all yeah. banter, you know, too much banter. Like, you know, banter is fine, but when it's just... If a character is, is there for just banter... Please do another draft. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to really give her a character, give her a motivation for joining Boba outside of just that random, yeah, I think I'll join you thing. <laughs> um, and so after those reveals, like I said, the Dengar stuff is for a season two. So we're still, there's still mystery here to be mind of Fennec was working with someone to find Boba in the Sarlacc pit. We don't know who, of course, in my head, it's Dengar. Um, and, uh, the rest of the flashback stuff plays out as original. And, and by, um, when I mean original, I mean in the original episode four, because this has been transplanted to episode five. <laughs> uh, um, in present day, as, uh, Finnick and the Trandoshans begin to work out, uh, strategic strikes to drive the, the Pikes off world, Boba and Trash talk about their previous history together. Uh, the Tuscans and the bar fight and whatnot. We get a sense that Boba sees in her himself when he was young. 
a uh you know a uh young kid who was uh who had bad stuff happen leaving to no parentage having to run and be a street urchin for the rest of their life and to build the life from there and how that drove them to extremes and falling into bad habits he hopes not to repeat the same mistakes of his own father which is why the this entire criminal enterprise of his is being set up it's for you know, it's still a criminal empire, so he's still doing some shady shit. You know, he faked an assassination last episode, <laughs> but he's doing it with a Mandalorian code of honor, in a sense. Nice. Honor among thieves type thing. So uh, he begins to show affection for uh, Drash, attempting metaphorically to undo the damage his father's legacy left on him. Uh, this is all observed in quiet by the Rancor trainer. Meanwhile, the Major Domo and Mark Shays have a meeting with the Pikes. Knowing that the Trandoshans have sided with Boba, the issue now becomes what to do with the other two gangs and how to stop Boba's rise to power. On a communication uh, of which the, the person on the other side is never seen, but is speaking Hutties, so you do the math, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, therefore suggesting that it's one of the twins, they realize that Boba is acting different than the, the man he made in the original trilogy, this cold-hearted, disintegrating badass, basically, that, that he seems to be more sentimental, more emotional. Cad Bane, who has been on retainer um, for the Pikes uh, for many years now and is now a trusted, uh, you know, employee of theirs, uh, suggests that unlike his father, uh, Boba is exploitable. Kill the heart, you kill the man. So the Major Domo thinks that uh, the plan will have an unintended consequences of creating a martyr for Boba to rally the people behind, but his concerns are ignored. Uh, the the cliffhanger of the episode is the Rancor trainer gets a secret message on his hollow terminal. Kill Drash or Finnick, doesn't matter which, just disturb Boba emotionally. Get him to act irrational. Yeah, kill the heart, kill the man. Ooh, yeah. Uh, episode 6, the original, From the Desert Comes a Stranger, new title, Not for Power. Alrighty. Yeah, overall changes, this entire episode is being scrapped. <laughs> Good. However, there is some stuff from episode 6 kept in here, such as the Garza flip a bombing. Flashbacks give us a quick recap of Mandalorian Season 2 and the Stinger, in which Boba killed Bib Fortuna. Scad, one of the other members of the mods, the, the, the guy with the, the, the uh, droid eye, uh, is killed. The Rancor trainer is killed. And the, the Major Domo switches sides. Cad Bane blows up Garza Flip's place. Boba rallies most husband. That's the general gist of this episode. So the summary, flashback scenes, whereas they ended abruptly in the original, I want them to continue up until this final episode. So the, the this is catching us up. So the flashback scenes are a new look at Mandalorian in Season 2, entirely from Boba and Phoenix's perspective. Oh, that's good. I yeah. like the sound of that. Yeah, so how they track down Jin Jar and the Tython, which my expanding universe brain melts at that because Tython <laughs> has broken hyperspace lanes and you can't get to it without force powers. But let's ignore that fact because it now canon, you can just go there, I guess. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, outside of my expanding universe brain melting, let's just say, let's show how they track him down, the deal they strike with Jen Jaren, uh, the entire stuff with, you know, the uh, with uh, Katie Sackhoff's character. Um, and I want the show, especially with that, how Boba internalizes coming face-to-face -face with basically the uh, embodiment of the Mandalorian royalty as him a clone of an outcast of the Mandalorians. That's good. 
So this way you're giving the, the fans what they want of having Din Djarin there, but he's not actually yes. hijacking the show. It's still an actual Boba Fett story. Exactly. Good. You're, you're having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. Like I said, and this is the, the final flashbacks, and the idea is not only to give new perspectives on Mandalorian Season 2 so you can truly understand what Boba and Finnick were after during that, outside of, I just want my armor back. To me, that was always like a lame excuse. Um, yeah. I, th I think there's some interesting stuff to dive in there. His relate Him coming face-to-face -face with the epitome of what is left of Mandalore while being a clone of someone who was kicked off Mandalore. So much interesting thematic stuff to, uh, to mind that just nothing. I st the, the best scene in Mandalorian Season 2 is when him and Katie Sackhoff's character start bantering back and forth like, we, we want to take back Mandalore. He's like, the Empire turned that planet to glass. Are you crazy? Yeah. Um, and he's like, just shut up, princess. I'm not here to talk to you. <laughs> Good. Yeah, like, I love that dynamic of the, like, the, the remnants of the once great Mandalorian Empire and the guy who has that legacy overshadowing him, but also knowing that he doesn't really belong there. Um, nice. also, also that gives people, so we can get our wonderful Pedro Pascal to show up, nice one. uh, because I, I love Pedro Pascal. Um, I wish Din Djarin actually had a character outside of being cool, but like that's, that's his entire character in two seasons. Um, but you know, whatever that's also gives people, you know, the ability to see the Mandalorian, you know, so that they can go, Oh, cool. Yay. Yeah. And, and then we can write him off afterwards. He does not show up in present day at all. He's only Good. in the flashbacks. Yeah. Save, save his story for actual season three, please. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, something I wanted to see is, uh, the actual aftermath of the season two finale for Mandalorian. Like, you know, it just ends with, you know, Luke taking yeah. Grogu. Uh, I, you know, I'd be interested to see that, you know, that coalition actually, you know, splitting off, parting ways, you know, final mm -hmm. words and all that, you know, Boba Fett steps to uh, Mandalorian, you know, that, that's been paid, but it'd be nice for them to have an actual talk and like, yeah. hey, um, I've got some big plans for the future on Tatooine. If you're ever nearby, uh, come see me. I think we could help each other out, something like yeah. that. And, you know, yeah. and, and as you say, go more into relationship with, with uh Bo-Katan, you know, yeah. I'm sure she's pretty peeved off. Din has the uh, <laughs> the the black saber now. Yeah, and also one thing, you know, speaking of, Boba went off uh, in Slave 1 to distract things, and then Fennec is on the ship with everyone else. So how do these two people meet back up? You know, yeah. that, that that's the idea there with the flashbacks, is to provide new context, provide more depth, and fix that. Yeah. Plus, uh, we could. There's the potential of him. You know, he's going one way. Luke's ship is going the other. They pass each other. He's like, "That's the motherfucker who pushed me in a Sarlacc pit." Yeah. <laughs> so I think we, yeah, play it. Don't don't play it as comedic, obviously. But there could yeah. be that moment of, oh, should I take my revenge? No, that that was in the past. So just something like that. Just have him move forwards. We'll say that Luke at no point in this series is ever here ever Fair. and also if he showed up in anything of star wars i wrote he'd be recast um yeah because uh, uncanny valley of uh cgi mannequin with uh robotized uh mark hamill voice is just fucking weird and is kind of morally dubious yeah so in the present day the rancor trainer gets an extended fight with drash while boba and finnick are not there uh to meet with the trandoshans the other Mog gang members attempt to save her, and ultimately Scad ends up dying in Drash's place. I want the death here to resemble when Kid Boba picked up his dead dad's helmet, uh, which, by the way, would still have Jenko's head in it. 
Um, uh, you know, if you remember, like, we don't touch upon that because, you know, Star Wars is kid-friendly, but yeah. um, he totally, his head's still in there. I'm just well, saying. You, know, you can kind of see the shadow of the head <laughs> <coming> out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, symbolically showing the connection between her and Boba, that they are going along similar lines, uh, and this is the next step in basically her repeating the same thing Boba did. Nice. Um, Rancor Trainer is subdued. Drash kills him in a fit of rage. When Boba returns, uh, he finds out he has a chat with, uh, with her and how he felt when his father died and how he wanted nothing but revenge on Mace Windu. Uh, and that real strength comes not from revenge, but from acceptance of understanding that this happened, moving on. It doesn't, he doesn't blame her for killing the traitor. He would kill Mace Windu if he was given the chance. But he, and he understands why she did it, but sometimes the better option is to accept and grow. And then, uh, with the information that the Rancor trainer failed, the Makshays and the Pikes decide to hit Boba financially. Uh, when the Majordomo realizes that the plan to destroy the biggest canteen in the city of Mos Espa for the sake of pissing Boba off, he turncoats. He isn't a good man. Far from it. He's looking out for his own skin. Uh, and once Mark Shays, uh, you know, basically falls into domestic terrorism, the people of Mos Espa will turn, uh, will turn him and will, mo and because he's the major domo, he's the face of the mayor, he will most likely be hunted down and lynched. So better option to side with the people that hopefully the people of Mos Espa will rally behind. So he goes to Boba. We intercut Cad Bane placing the bomb and destroying Gar uh, Flip's place. Uh, and it going up in flames with the Major Domo racing against time to tell Boba he is too late. Finnick and Boba put out a citywide message giving the evidence that Makshay's complicity the attack on Garza Flip's uh, cantina and his connection to the Pikes. War has now begun for the fate of Mos Espa. Uh, episode 7, the original title, In the Name of Honor, this is kept. So, uh, the overall changes is we return far more to this being closer to the original, uh, but with some big changes. Din Djarin, Grogu, that one mechanic lady. God, I hate the mechanic lady. <laughs> yeah, Freetown, Cobb, Vanth, all that is not here. Like, Good. Uh, okay, here, here's the thing. I'm a Deadwood fan. Timothy Oliphant uh, plays uh, Cobb Vanth, and he was Seth <laughs> in Deadwood. And the wee Quay bartender that he's best friends with is the guy who played Dan Doherty in Deadwood. Oh, neat. It's just a Deadwood reference, and I love that. As a Deadwood fan, I'm all for that, but it has no place in this story. Um, you know, Freetown can get its own show or something. Like, <laughs> I I'm more than happy to have Deadwood in Star Wars, but um, not in my Boba Fett show. Gotcha. Uh, so, like, they're removed entirely, all that stuff. Then Jaren's not here, Grogu's not here, etc. Um, uh, instead of random village in, uh, in the middle of nowhere, Tatooine coming to Boba's rescue, the entire town of Mos Espa turns against the Pikes and Makshays. Uh, basically, and uh, so it's the Trandoshans, the Mod Gang, and a few turncoats from the Aqualish and the Clintunians you know, that will take on the Pikes. Uh, there's also some setup for a second season. Uh, also, no Rancor doing King Kong stuff. That's gone. Um, uh, so, before the initial fighting starts, Cad Bane tries to parlay with Boba. Uh, taunting him about how he's too much like his father. We also got the reveal that he is the one that killed the Tuscan tribe. So instead of that reveal coming out of nowhere, where the Pikes did it, we know that Cad Bane did yeah. it. And we get him taunting Boba with that. And that makes it more personal. 
Uh, and Cat Bane rubs it in his face that he did it personally. Um, and uh, the major domo scene reading Boba's surrender is kept. Uh, your, 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 your blood shall fertilize the sand of Tatooine. Um, and all that jazz, that's all capped. The big battle happens, however, the first wave, instead of being random pike thugs, is the Aqualish and the Clatoonians working behalf of the pikes, because the pikes don't want to waste soldiers and resources, so they just send their pawns out. Uh, after several turncoat, and we see smaller characters such as patrons of Garth of Whip's cantina will not rally behind Boba, that's when the pikes pull out the big guns with the Scorpionic droids. Boba tells Finnick and Drash to go get Slave One while he deals with something personal. So the droids, instead of being dispatched in this really overly long, drawn-out fight sequence with a Rancor, is just blown up by Slave One because, of yes. course, it is. Um, like there's no need for a Rancor there. You got Slave <laughs> One, man. Um, and uh, Slave One is piloted by Finnick and Drash. Uh, the, the Pikes are routed and Boba corners Cad Bane. The fight plays out almost exactly the same with the same dialogue. Example, you got too much of your father's blood in you. You're a killer. Um, and so with Boba de defeating Cad Bane and killing him with the gaffy stick, Boba has metaphorically killed his father and killed his past as now a new Boba Fett. Nice one. Yeah. Um, Mark Shays uh, makes an attempt to get off world, but his shuttle blows up. Uh, the twins are revealed to be behind the situation with the Pikes to the audience as they begin to do damage control with the Pikes Syndicate and plan another takeover of their cousin's uh, empire, this time more direct. Boba, Drash, and Finnick walk down the streets of Mos Espa uh, as it is being repaired from the battle, uh, seeing their new criminal empire being built symbolically around them, not for power, but in the name of honor. And there you go. Brilliant stuff. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> this was... You know, so much of trying to figure out, like, the trailers really hammer home this idea that Boba wants to be a criminal, but he wants to do it in, like, Honor Among Thieves style. Yeah. Characters he doesn't know comes up to sh help him in the finale, and has nothing to do with the fate of Mos Espa or anything like yeah. that. And his plans seem weird, sometimes counterintuitive, and so I wanted to fix that and really drive home the message. He's a criminal. He's still a bad person. But he is doing it in a very mafioso type, where there you don't you don't hurt the family type thing. Good. Yeah, like proper proper morally gray, which is yeah. which is why he should be instead of the you know kind of frumpy old man we got who's like no no killing like that's not Boba Fett man you know yeah. uh, your Boba Fett sounds much more competent, which is great because in the show by the end he's like we're not cut out for this. It's like <laughs> then why did he spend this whole time trying to do it? Mm -hmm. uh so yes your boba fett sounds like the kind of boba fett i want that's the natural evolution of the character from from the prequels from his appearance in mandalorian uh your idea of seeing the mandalorian finale from his side of things that's great stuff question you may have, you may have mentioned his name it, or, yeah, it might just come past my head are you going to include the wookie character or is he cut completely the one from the comic i, I mentioned black chrysanthemum i i cut him yeah, entirely I, gotcha that's fair. Um, he, my idea is that this would lead into season two. The twins are the main bad guys, you know, and they're trying to take over their cousin's empire. And so they were trying subtly this time. It blew up in their faces. So now they're going to try something a bit more, out, on, on, you know, in your face. My idea is that you kind of have like um episode five thing where, you know, Darth Vader hires all those bally hunters. Where uh, Black Chrysanthemum shows up in season two, 
Dengar shows up, and we, we get in Dash Rengar as well, and uh, IG-88, etc., and blah, blah, blah. And we basically, it's the War of the Bounty Hunters kind of type thing. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's my general idea. Uh, and I have a lot of little small things that are set up for that, like the twins being behind everything, Dengar being revealed to be part of Finnick's backstory, and saving Boba from the Sarlacc, etc., etc. So the, the, that's my plan. Is I just, he felt like, like it was cool to see him, because I know he's from the comics, and I've read those comics, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. But like, there was nothing with him. Like, he was just kind of there. Yeah. And there's that real, really weird scene where he's just kind of really upset at Garth Flip's face, and then just kills the Trandoshan, and I'm just like, okay, I get yeah, it. Yeah, but before he kills them, the, the you know the ladies let's get a an exposition dump on his backstory. Just yeah, mid just before he rips over Hums off, it's like where, where does this come from? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that 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 would be my plan is to move all that stuff to the next season. That's fair. I feel like him getting a you know. An actual live-action debut was a good move, but like you said, he didn't really have much to do in this show. So I like your idea of giving him and the twins uh, their own, you know, larger slice in a hypothetical next season. Mm-hmm. Um, and my idea is that characters stay dead. So uh, Cad Bane dead. I'm not bringing him back. Good. I do not like any of that blinking light means he's alive. Yeah. Bullshit. Keep him dead. And at the, it's even worse because at the end of the original book of Boba Fett, Cobb Vanth is brought back from the dead. Yeah. I didn't even, I saw the post credit scene and I, at first I was like, who's that guy? It was only later that I realized, oh, that's, that's Cod Vanth. I didn't recognize him. <laughs> Why are you bringing him back? So characters stay dead. And I'm not the biggest Clone Wars fan. I haven't watched a whole lot of it. So, you know, my characterization of Cad Bane might be a little off or whatever. But my idea was, and the gist I got from the Book of Boba Fett was that he's what everybody thought Boba was in the original trilogy. And so I wanted to counterbalance that with a new new lease on life Boba realizing that he needs to create his own clan, contrasting that with the literal, you know, interpretation of his past, the Clint Eastwood in space, cowboy in space type thing, and Cad Bane. Yeah, that's great stuff. And, and that ties into the question I was going to ask, if you had taken much uh, influence from Boba Fett and Shannock's roles in the Clone Wars and uh, Bad Batch shows, uh, which, which I'm guessing you haven't much, because you, you just said you haven't really seen those shows. I, I've watched a bit here and there, but not much. You may have heard of this, but it's that interesting element of a deleted arc in Clone Wars where Boba Fett, you know, finally in that suit, was going to have a, a showdown with Cad Bane, you know, leading mm-hmm. to that iconic dent in his helmet. So, you know, that was cancelled, That so it's up to debate if it happened or not. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people say it still does because of the dent, but, you know, that, that's a cool idea that actually, you know, connects those two characters. And your your story it builds up upon it much better than the show actually did. Mm-hmm. Hey, you mean when Cad Bane just comes out of nowhere in the middle of the desert? Yeah, yeah. And Cad Bane is great because, like, my dad every you know he's he's not like you, uh, you and me or my other friends. He he gives jack crap about extended universe. So whenever someone like a Shoker shows up in the shows, he just has a blank expression on his face. Uh, <laughs> but with Cad Bane, he loved this guy at first sight because he's such a huge sucker. He was, he was like. Western with robots, how cool is that? So <laughs> he's a character who can like appeal to not quite diehard Star Wars fans. So giving him mm. much bigger runtime would be, you know, it's such a smart move. He's just questioned why they didn't do it in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. Dave Filoni really loves that character. So you think, you know, in the show he's behind, he'd have a bigger, bigger role. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, the, the idea was just to, to make this consistent, like I said. So, I, you know, Book of Boba Fett is a complicated thing because I was so excited for it. And I was so disappointed by what I got. Yeah, same. I tried defending the show for a while, but just after, you know, after the whole Mandalo and hijacking, it's like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. So I saw glimpses of great ideas. So I tried to expand same. upon it and try and keep it much closer to the original than originally intended. Like I said, if I was doing this blank slate, this would have been scrapped entirely. I might even have a Boba show, but let's just say the, the stipulation was it was a Boba thing. I'd set it on Nar I'd I'd have the Hut Cartel be a major player, stuff like this. I'd basically be pulling a bunch of uh, criminal underworld stuff from the expanded universe that I grew up reading, that I adore, and putting that back in there. I wouldn't have set it on Tatooine, because one thing we forget a lot in Star Wars is that Tatooine's supposed to be a backwater planet no one cares yeah. about. Yeah, all the major stuff happens here. And exactly, I don't know why. yeah. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of Tatooine. So after this, I hope we're done. Uh, something I would love in a possible season two of Boba Fett is if Boba Fett revisited Camino. Because uh, in you know, in Bad Batch, that place was totally destroyed. So that could be an interesting element of Boba Fett revisiting the wreckage of the place he was, you know, mm. he was born in, he was molded. I, I see an interesting parallel that he set. He decided to set his new home on a desert planet when he grew up and was cloned on a water planet. Mm. I, I think there's an interesting thing there. Um, I, That'd probably be like a season three type thing I would do. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd be putting the se- in season two because season two is far more Godfather in space thing. Yeah. Uh, with it, with the conflicts with the twins building and the war on the bounty hunters. So, um, but yeah, no, that him returning to Camino is actually a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Just hypothetically, if you ever to get kicked off Tatooine, he could move to Camino and be like, "I was the first slave here, but now I can be the king of this place." You know, he remakes mm. his empire, his base of operations there. That could be like a kind of full circle. I do have a couple of points I disagree with you on. Uh, personally, okay. I would keep I would keep the Rancor Rampage for the finale <laughs> and uh, Cod Vanth because I uh-huh. feel like you know I wouldn't have I wouldn't have the the Rancor go full King Kong towards the end. I would mm-hmm. probably kill it off by uh, Cad Bane. You know, I definitely don't want any of that. You know. Grogu force connection rubbish, but <laughs> that wouldn't be in a situation in this case. So, you know, I think that that image of Boba Fett riding a Rancor, that is such a cool image. I'm sure people mm. watching, you know, uh, Return of the Jedi all those years ago when it came out would just <laughs> scream upon seeing that image. Mm. Uh, so I'd keep that. Like I said, just kill the Rancor off, make it more dramatic. Cad Vanth, um, I think, I think the story could work with him involved. Mm. Uh, I I don't think I would I either wouldn't have the fake out death or if he were to die keep it permanent like you said there should be mm. death should matter in this universe Um, I actually debated for a long time keeping the Rancor Rampage mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I decided on Slave 1 because uh, you know it's him using his dad's ship to submit his empire to me, that's a better image than random Rancor. I actually planned to move the Rancor Rampage to Season 2, since it, it was a gift by the mayor on behalf of the twins. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was, and I wanted him to actually train with the Beast, instead of just magically being able to do it. Yeah. I, I wanted to show that growth. And they have that brief little joke about the holiday special where he's like i i've rode things bigger than this because he rode a dinosaur in the holiday special yeah um and like 
that's cool and all, but I want to build up to that personally. And the Rancor was introduced, forgotten about, then brought back at the, the finale just so that we could have a cool image. You know, th this is a problem I have a lot with modern Star Wars, um, is that it feels like two people, in, in this case quite literally two people, D D Dave Filoni and John Favreau, have a toy box. And they picked up a bunch of action figures and threw them together, and it's like they're five-year-olds trying to figure, you know, when, when you're playing with action figures at five, the story doesn't matter, the thematics doesn't matter, characterization yeah. doesn't matter. You, 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 you want Anakin to fight Darth Vader. Who cares if they're the same person, you know? It's cool! And that's, that's the mentality of all of Star Wars right now, and it drives me up the wall. Yeah. Um, so I think Boba Fett and Rancor, cool idea as a five-year-old. Needs build up to work in an actual reality TV show, not you know, not five year olds' imagination with a bunch of action figures, you know. Yeah, that's valid. Um, Cobb Vanth, I removed him because Freetown to me seems like very far away from Mos Espa. In a hypothetical future season, he might show up as the twins try to take over other areas of Tatooine, maybe. Yeah, uh, but but like you know, like Deadwood in Star Wars. Sounds great to me. It's its own <laughs> series. It's not Boba Fett, you know. Gotcha. I just think him and Boba should have met, given a whole suit connection. Oh, yeah. Because when he showed up in Book of Boba Fett, I was like, oh, they're going to meet. Um, there'll be banter and stuff about, hey, that used to be my suit. But nope, he just gets killed by Cad, I guess, only to come back. So mm -hmm. I think having those two interact could have been quite could have been quite neat. There could have been a discussion on uh, the suit doesn't make the man, the man makes the suit, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, th there's definitely material to be mined there. Like I said, in a hypothetical future season, I might have brought him in. Uh, but to me, he was always very separate from everything going on, and it just didn't feel natural to me. Uh, but then again, that's also my own taste. I, I like gangster stuff. I like you know, crime dramas. So, like, my focus was far more on that and progressing Boba as a character than it was connecting the dots of all the other shows, you know? Yeah. Um, anything else? There's one little point I like to make regarding the, the actual show. Uh, yeah. With those two, let's say, hijacked Mandalorian episodes, the whole time I was watching them, I was thinking to myself, Star Wars should just become, should just become an anthology series. You know, go back to the root, kind of roots Clone Wars did, where each episode is its own Star Wars, you know, its own contained episode or arc with an individual character. Because I feel like in this time period, Mandalorian, a book of Boba Fett playing around with, you know, why have uh, Luke Skywalker and Ashoka Tano show up in... An episode of a book of Boba Fett show when you can have this one mass encompassing show that I think could like kind of jump between these arcs. So, you know, we can have the Ashoka Tano show, we can have, uh, you know, Grogu, Denjarin, Book of Boba Fett. I think, you know, I just think that could have been an innocent, could have been a, an alternative angle to the series, could have gone and just make it a, a big anthology series. I mean, that is. A valid interpretation. I remember back in the day before Discovery was announced, we knew that there was a new Star Trek show, and um, it was actually rumored to be an anthology. Each season would be a new crew, a new ship. Um, and I really, yeah, I really like that idea, but I, I don't think I would be interested in that in Star Wars necessarily. I think it would work better as like um, maybe a bunch of miniseries doing that or whatnot but i'm i'm also very stickler about uh, star wars i don't really care about the skywalker family i don't care about most of the jedi i think the jedi are a bunch of hypocrites yeah 
who got what was coming to them at the end of Revenge of the Sith. I don't like Luke Skywalker. I the the whole Sith Jedi conflict is only interesting when it's portrayed as a Catholic versus Protestant, same re- religion, different interpretation, instead of straight up bad guy, good guy, you know, uh, binary choices. And I'm just not, I want Star Wars, the, the Star Wars I like is like the Old Republic uh, games, the Old Republic uh, comics, etc. Um, and all of the criminal underworld stuff, like the, the war on the bounty hunters and stuff like that from the comics. Um, that's for more my jam. Um, so, like, I would be much more interested in not doing this one whole series, but instead making, like, one season something different, or a series of interconnected mini-series that, you know, switch from character to character, I think would be interesting. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want a Star Wars story, uh, show in which every three episodes I get a new main character, you know? Duh. But I do think it has that your idea does have merit. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Elevated Bullpen. Uh, the next episode in this season uh, will be out in two weeks. We will be covering the Life is Strange franchise. Uh, mm-hmm. And in similar to this one, where we uh, each tackled a different way of doing things, I am tackling an adaptation, and Josh is tackling a, a new addition to the franchise, a new game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will each be tackling the franchise from a different angle. Uh, so look forward to that in two weeks' time. Until then, thank you very much for joining us, and hope you enjoyed the rewrites. If not, hope you enjoy the original shows, uh, and see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.